Kiefer's a guy who's doing his part to talk about why he thinks that games are art and gush over things that are near to our hearts. So let's select a game and press start. Hello and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and every episode I bring on a guest to talk about a video game that made an impact on their life. Let's introduce them now. They are an Eisner Award-winning animation director, comic book artist, and writer. We've got Hamish Steele here today. Hamish, how are you doing today? Wow, such such predigree. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for asking. I'm really excited to talk about uh, one of my favorite games of all time today. Yeah, um, I was about to say thank you for having me, but I like slid into your DMs and said, please have me on because I will just say it. I said it off mic, but I think this is the best video game podcast I was about to say that I've listened to, but maybe ever. I think it's just wonderful. So it's a real honor. That's very high praise. And I really appreciate that. <laughs> I hope that this uh, lives up to the expectations of any new listeners coming in. But before <laughs> we talk about the video games themselves and have a wonderful discussion, I just want, for the people who don't have the pleasure of knowing you, allow you the space to introduce yourself, what do you do, and what do you like? Cool. So, yeah, I um, am a comic book artist, I guess, primarily. Um, I had a, a, a graphic novel called Pantheon come out a few years ago, which was a comedy adaptation of Egyptian mythology. And I had a webcomic called Dead Endia. And last year, a Netflix adaptation of that a webcomic came out that I show around during the pandemic called Dead End Paranormal Park because they needed it spelled out. Dharma Monster, the Jeffrey Dharma story or whatever it's called. They like a, <laughs> a colon. And yeah, we had two seasons of that. Um, the webcomic that it was based on is now getting published by Union Square this month, I guess, when this comes out. So yeah, I'm a comic book artist, but thanks to the show and being a kind of animation director as well right now my career is just like whatever i i've had a lot of great opportunities come my way i can't talk about most of them but i'm currently like writing a film um developing a bunch of other shows and um actually i've just begun directing my first game but i can't say kind of anything else about that but that's the true dream come true because yeah, I'm I've obviously I love games and I love making uh things and I've tried many times to make games, but I'm now finally in a position where that might actually happen. So yeah, what do I like? I like crocodiles, I like robots. Um <laughs> I wish I could draw more for fun, but that's now my day job. So games are a true like escape. I, you had a guest on a few um, weeks ago who said that they can't really do PC gaming because the PC is their like workstation, and I really felt that. Um, and it's similar with art; like I can't do art for fun anymore because I do it for work. So whenever I need a break, I think curling up in bed with my Switch is like the ideal gaming method for me. For sure, that's. I think that might have been me who said that the PC is my workstation. Honestly, yeah, um, because that's that's genuinely how I feel. I have so many games ready to play on my Steam account that I just haven't gotten to because I spend so much time here. I work my full time job forty hours a week, and then I'm editing the podcast here, and then I'm just like, I would rather be in a living room zonking out in front of my four mm. K TV instead of doing the old mouse and keyboard I, it, it feels and especially since i'm doing a video game podcast it almost feels like a research when i pick a pick up a controller in front of my computer screen 
My husband's completely the opposite as well. He will work all day on his computer and then the minute it turns five, he just like opens up Genshin Impact or <laughs> uh, Dead by Daylight or any of these like big PC online games and just plays that. So we're very different in that sense. Yeah, no, I'm 100% that meme that goes around about like, all right, I'm done looking at the bad screen. Time to go stare at the good screen now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you have a lot of insanely impressive projects and a lot of just really cool stuff that you've worked on on a, on a career basis, which really flattered me that you reached out to me <laughs> to talk about my podcast. So thank you. I mean, like you have a lot of exciting stuff happening and absolutely good luck towards the future because it seems like so many new opportunities are coming up. But you also mentioned that you're going to be directing a video game. Uh, and of course, here we do have to work <laughs> through the community of gamers who do like to gatekeep. Uh, <laughs> of course, they're the most notorious gatekeepers of them all. So we do have to check your gaming credentials a little bit here. So let's talk about your gaming history, who or what got you into it, <laughs> what's your relationship with it, and so on. So uh, when I, you know, was delivered, was born and came back from the hospital, I'm pretty sure my two older brothers were playing Super Mario Brothers 1, 2, and 3 on the NES. I remember very distinctly, like, very early memories of um, playing Duck Hunt and stuff like that. We were truly a, like, ride-or-die Nintendo house, you know, curse the gray station or whatever it was um, <laughs> back in the console wars. We did get a Dreamcast, I remember, but my true we had the nes we had the super nintendo we sold that to get an n64 and then bought a super nintendo again later <laughs> but always kind of day one purchases of every nintendo console in our house um usually selling the previous console and and all that stuff nowadays i i have all the current gen consoles i do game a lot i will say like because I was such a Nintendo fan, there's massive gaps in my like knowledge to the point where like that's what I play a lot of these days. I kind of like I've never played Final Fantasy VII, which is crazy, <laughs> but it's like on my Switch, ready to go. I um, played Chrono Trigger for the first time this year, which I loved. One thing is that in Europe, there are so many games we didn't get. Like Earthbound, Mario RPG, Chrono Trigger, none of that came out for the Super Nintendo because I think RPGs were a much tougher thing to translate to every European language back then. So there was all these gaps. I, like Earthbound is probably my favorite game. I know we're talking about Wind Waker, but you've already done an Earthbound episode and, and that was how I found this podcast. I kind of just wanted to hear people talk about Earthbound. And I love Mother 3 as well, but... Uh, I first played Earthbound on the Wii U because I think that was its first European release. So I do play a lot of modern games, but I would say that my main pastime is like finding a franchise or series that I've somehow ignored and just like fully going through it from the first game to the last. Like in um, lockdown, I played every Mega Man game, <laughs> like including spinoffs and like the weird Game Boy things. I Good lord. <laughs> I hadn't I, I hadn't played any of the Battle Network games, but that's because I knew that there was a collection coming, and so I'm looking forward to that. Um, so you played even like Mega Man Legends and all those? No, I, I lied. I said every. Um, but gotcha. I've, got, I've, I've got them like, I've got them like almost on a checklist, should I say. I played all the mainline games. I played the uh, X and then Zero and then 
a few others, but like I, I, I'm kind of like that. If I found um, a gap in my knowledge, I can't really just play like one of them. I'm kind of weird with completionism because I, I don't actually care about getting 100% in, in an individual game so much as like I need to play every single <laughs> entry in order as much as I can. I mean, game preservation, we'll get onto that conversation. Sometimes that's very hard. Like the reason I haven't played Legends is uh, I do not know how to. I definitely want to. I think that's still one of the most beautiful looking games of all time. Mm -hmm. I would say 90% of the money I spend on games is old games. I kind of think about how like my dad got to a certain age and then just stopped listening to new music and just only listens to the music of his childhood. I kind of feel a little bit similar with games. Like I'm not too much of a grumpy old man. I do play modern games, but there's definitely... When I buy a new game and put it in and then download the day one patch and then come to a menu that's just like online modes and currencies, I do get a bit like, what the hell's going on? And then I played Final Fantasy 1 recently, just like, it was great. I felt, I thought it held up. I thought I had a, you know, I had a good time. I just pressed start and I got to play a game. I would say my credentials are, <laughs> I feel like a proper gamer, but at the same time, I, I've yeah, got huge gaps. For sure. No, I mean, like, that's everybody to a degree. I think if you consider yourself a true varied gamer, you either have A, no life, or B, are lying to yourself. <laughs> because there's just an overwhelming amount of video games to engage with and play because of the length, time, commitment, and everything that goes into that. I consider myself a film enthusiast, but I haven't seen what feels like even 1% of the, the essentials. And I've seen, at, at this point, over 1,300 movies. Every time you think you've gotten pretty far into something you realize you just haven't scratched the surface of something else true and like i i feel the same way about films but it, it's great it's good to have gaps because you can i mean i watched um cabaret for the first time this year cabaret is so good it's so good and i know it's like i know it's the whole thing of wow you watch one of the most critically acclaimed most awarded films of all time and it was good but you're still like wow it's so good and you can still get that with games i played um Zelda 1. So for this for this episode, I've played every Zelda game, but I have not I had never completed Zelda 1. It just was one of those games. I haven't completed Metroid 1. I know that's like a sim a sentiment held by a lot of people where like I've played them endlessly every time Nintendo re-released them. I've just never sat down and actually committed the time to finishing it. And I did Zelda 1 this week. It's so good. I think there was a period of time when I was a bit too young but and too frustrated by like it not being completely accessible it's very hard it doesn't tell you what to do but i think in a post breath of the world world zelda one feels almost more revolutionary in a way like it, it's it's the closest zelda game to breath of the wild and i know that was like part of breath of the world's development process i finally like got it and I think there's a few old movies where you're like, that's an old movie, I don't want that. You kind of go through that sort of period when you're younger. And now I watch it and like, Cabaret was just like, oh my God, an adult film about just like two people bonding and, and facing impossible, terrifying horrors while singing and dancing. This is amazing. Is this what like, I mean, I, I like a Marvel film, but is this what like comic con whole h people are doing when they're screaming because they see their characters show up in their movie are they is this me but it's just with liza minnelli in a chair i don't know 
I'm imagining like now, like uh, the Avengers Endgame, like people screaming and applauding, losing their mind for that one conversation in Cabaret when the two of them are arguing now, like and, <laughs> yeah. like him dropping that bomb on her. God, no, that's so good. But like, I feel the same way. Like once you really like get a sense of putting yourself into the mindset of like really getting into a medium, you really find like a second layer of fun just making connective dots and diagrams and everything like that like oh this is how this inspires that like this is how ingmar bergman influenced paul schrader uh yeah. for first reforms or stuff like that i watched persona the ingmar bergman film for the first time last year and this is like oh my god this is every movie that's ever been made since mm. persona this is every david lynch film this is like any movie that has in their their notes the idea of identity or anything like that it's just there's so much in persona alone and it's just an 88 minute movie mm. i mean i mentioned playing every mega man game that came from me playing i think it was 11 whichever was the 3d one that came out one of the most recent ones i thought it was fun but i was like i need to see how everything in this franchise like came to be what was the first game that had like charge shots and power slides and this enemy. And same with Cabaret. I'm like, I need to see every Bob Fosse movie. I need to see like <laughs> where this, how this came about. And the thing is, I think that I love games. I'm also very fascinated in the production of them. I love like art books. I love uh, reading about game creators. When I was growing up, I, I kind of think games were my like books or movies in the sense that they were inspiring me creatively in other mediums. I'm an artist. I learned to draw through fan art of games. And one of the earliest things I used to do when I loved drawing was getting a bunch of paper, stapling it together and drawing an instruction manual for like a made up game. And that moved me into, I, I, became really a big fan of um, making like fake sprites for games, making like sprite edits and stuff. And then I became obsessed with RPG Maker in my teens, tried to make endless RPGs and stuff like that, but then realized, got to that hurdle of like, hmm, game production, it is hard actually. Um, <laughs> not everyone is Toby Fox and you can't just like make a game on your own. Yeah, so I, I, as long as I've loved games, I've also been fascinated by making them and... I remember as a really young kid, actually around about the same time as Wind Waker, about 2001 or two, Shigeru Miyamoto came to London and did a signing. And I like went to a Virgin Megastore basement and like in a huge queue of people, it was truly like a pop star to me. I drew a picture of Yoshi in the car to like give to him. My mum took us there and it really did feel like she was thinking like, I should be taking my sons to go see like a huge rock star or like <laughs> a band or something. But no, I'm going to a basement so that they can meet the person who made the jumpy man. I love games. <laughs> Video games are great. That's really incredible that you got to go to a uh, Shigeru Miyamoto sign signing. That's you've certainly proved your credentials here. <laughs> this this goes into like a more like you've talked about that you're going through like the lineage you like tracking the lineage of video games uh you like going through whole series what have you been playing lately <laughs> so my first game i would have usually done would be earthbound the second game i i suggested to you was persona 5 mm -hmm. but i think you said quite truthfully that you need to play that and that game took me like a year to complete on and off but it was a, an extremely um, moving and like, in, like it changed my life in some ways. I started playing that in March 2020 and it was my lockdown game. 
the game is about it's about loads of things, but like a lot of RPGs, you are building friendships and you are slowly not only building friendships, but like going out for meals and going to the beach together and just doing all this friend stuff that I couldn't do in lockdown. And so it really like became my social life in a way. Because I love that game so much and because they've just come out on Switch, I've been playing three and four. Um, which I'd never played before. So um, I completed three, I'm currently on four, which is really fun. It's really moody and different. I'm sort of impressed by a series where a lot of core mechanics don't change, but the vibe and the tone are so different for each game. Yeah, I, I'm, I've got a lot of retro games currently like ready to go. I've got Final Fantasy VII, which I've never played uh, on my uh, Switch, ready to go, the original, and then the remake. Um, <laughs> In terms of modern games I'm playing, I'm like, I'm kind of slowing down with a lot of games because I know Tears of the Kingdom is coming. Yeah. So I'm like trying to finish as many games as possible. I love Advance Wars and I've been looking forward to this game, but I'm like not playing that because I'm not getting involved before Tears of the Kingdom takes up all my life. Yeah, I mean, I've just started development on this uh, new game. And so I'm playing a lot of games that I think will influence it. I'm, I'm kind of scattershot at the moment in terms of what I'm playing. I've, I've not got a big thing on the go. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I definitely relate to that conversation, especially about like the whole like lead up to Tears of the Kingdom, just sort of messing with my video game productivity. Yeah. Uh, I've been mainly playing games for the show and upcoming episodes, but there are some games that I've been really dying to play that have come out this year. The Resident Evil 4 remake, the Dead Space mm -hmm. remake. You, like you said, Advanced Wars 1 and 2 re-release. The Final Fantasy 1 through 6 Pixel Remaster, which now that I'm saying it out loud, wow, all remakes, weird. Um, but there's also, there's um, as of the time of this recording, uh, next week is when the new Jedi game is coming out, the Star Wars Jedi Survivor. And I yeah. don't know when I'm going to play that relative to Tears of the Kingdom, because I know Tears of the Kingdom is going to be a day one buy for me. And I enjoyed uh, Jedi Fallen Order. This new one looks like it's really refining the stuff that I did not care for in the first game. So I'm really stoked to play it. But it's kind of one of those like, look, Zelda's coming out. That's going to be that's going to be the big one. I'm just going to tear through some of my backlog until then. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that game, too. I think Nintendo games typically are a day one purchase because they never go on sale. So there's no point waiting. Yeah. Whereas by Christmas, the Jedi game will probably be down a few bucks or uh even on i i always forget what they're called but even on those like services where they put out just games your subscription services like yeah. your playstation plus and uh game pass yeah but yeah i love the first one and um i'm happy for more i thought the first game was short but not in a bad way but in the sense that i could have definitely played a, a few more hours so i'm glad that a few more hours are coming out and the spider-man game is you know the same deal where it's like I like that game. I'm happy to play a new one of that, which is what Tears of the Kingdom ultimately is. But because they're so secretive about it and because I just know social media is just going to be people sharing what weird things they've discovered, that's one of the few game releases where I really am. Like, it's in my calendar, not got any other plans. I really want to sit down and play that for myself, not for like work, not for, for anything. And like, I feel kind of weird about it. Like, I, I don't know if it'll be good. I feel like there'll be discourse because there always is. It, is it better? Is it worse? Is it DLC? Is it a full game? I don't know. But every Zelda game is kind of like that. There's always that like, is it going to be the best Zelda game of all time? Does it have to be? <laughs> like, yeah, the best Zelda game of all time is always the last Zelda game that came out. 
Exactly. <laughs> That's the, yeah, we talked about the Zelda cycle on the Breath of the Wild episode. Like, this, why isn't it more like the last game that we shot on the last time when the last game came out? And then when that last game came out, that, yeah, yeah. so on and so forth. What do you look like? I know we've talked about, uh, you know, Tears of the Kingdom sort of dominating our future in terms of what we're going to be playing. And that's kind of like overshadowing the future releases. Is there anything else besides, you know, I think like you're talking about going through franchises, like the Final Fantasy stuff. Are there any other franchises you're looking forward to going through and playing? Yakuza is a series that I know nothing about other than it looks completely my shit. It's the best. It looks so funny. It looks so... I mean, so I loved um, Shenmue on the Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. Um, in my memory, it's still the most realistic game I've ever made, which I know is not true, and I will not go back and see. No, I'm not that good. But there's, I mean, it's something I liked about Persona 5 as well. There is just something nice about having a city that's yours to explore, find little mini games, find little side quests. I don't even know if that's really what Yakuza is, but... I've seen enough out of context screenshots that make me think that I'll really dig that. And I know that once I start, I'll probably want to like play them all the way through. So it's about like finding the gap <laughs> um, in my life for that to happen. Mm-hmm. I- I've never really tackled Final Fantasy, which is like such a huge gap. But I'm deciding to play that. Basically, I'm playing one, then seven, then two, then eight, then three, then nine so like you're jumping back and forth between the classics and then the the, the new age and then yeah yeah basically from what i gather like sevens the like first quote-unquote 3d one mm-hmm. and so it's like i don't know i have played a few i played the three uh the final fantasy 3 ds remake yeah the, with all the like chibi graphics and i i really like that i've played two kingdom hearts games they're tangentially related. I've played the uh, Final Fantasy Rhythm game for the 3DS. Yeah. Uh, and also, I had like an amazing summer um, playing Crystal Chronicles, like the traditional way when it came out with the link cables and all that stuff. I have since gone back and I realized that game is sort of not fun. But <laughs> when, I was, uh, when I was a kid, I went over to my, I like stayed at my friend's house for a whole summer and we just played Crystal Chronicles and Four Swords Adventures like every day. And mm-hmm. then I, I realized how almost nobody got a chance to do that, like play those games as they were intended. You needed so much kit. You needed like three friends who had GBAs, had link cables, wanted mm-hmm. to play that those games. It's like a tall order. Yeah, not to jump ahead, but I've never had like the GameCube uh, Game Boy adapter. So I've never done the Tingle Tuner in the original GameCube version of Wind Waker, for example. Yeah. Um again skipping ahead but when it comes to game preservation like i get that bringing games to new consoles is a solution but there are so many games and nintendo really shot themselves in the foot with this that you just like how do you bring them like the ds and 3ds games are they just like trapped forever because no one can really work out how to make some of those games work if you don't have two screens they you can put wii controls kind of onto a joy con but it's still like still kind of not the same Sure. There's definitely people working around that, right? Yeah. Crystal, like obviously the Crystal Chronicles re-release that came out a couple of years ago didn't do very well to your point about needing so much kit. But there's also like things that kind of work. There's uh, The World Ends With You, which was a DS release that has since mm-hmm. been ported to uh, consoles. 
there are certainly games that don't necessarily use the dual screen to its full advantage and could benefit from being ported to a different console, such as Kid Icarus Uprising. Yes, totally. But yeah, I definitely see your point about like, there's just so many games that are linked to the specificities of their, you know, original hardware that they are, they would be very difficult to translate. I mean, even something like Metal Gear Solid 4, which was just a PlayStation 3 game, would be very difficult to adapt into uh, the PlayStation 5 just because of how connected it was to the the very specific core processors of the PlayStation 3. And you can re-release and like fix things like, you know, the Skyward Sword remake kind of mapped the sword mechanics to the Joy-Cons and it was fine, but it's you're still like not playing the original. That is still an experience that is lost to time. Yeah. Yeah, adaptation is a solution, but there is like this the question of like, what about the original? Preservation isn't just making something available with what we have, but making sure that the things that are out are available in a format forever. This is also just such a unique medium for that conversation because with film, and even film has this problem alone when it's just purely watching the film with restorations and, yeah. you know, now there are definitive and non definitive versions, originals. And, you know, like uh, your George Lucas edits or even like uh, in your auteurs, like there are people who dispute which version of a Wong Kar Wai film is the best to watch mm. because he has gone back and his restorations and changed color grading and things like that. This this becomes a difficult conversation, especially with the, whenever there's a re-release. Yeah, I mean, I'm very much the release the original cuts of Star Wars kind of person. And yet my webcomic there's the webcomic version i published it with one publisher which had their own notes then the tv show was an adaptation and then i'm publishing again with a different publisher who has their own notes so already i i've like released so many versions of the story there's probably some debates about like what's (laughs) the true version what's the best version so i can't totally say i'm guilt-free on that front but you know it's just it's it's so strange like to me it should be standard that when a game is remade like let's say Resident Evil 4 it just like comes with the original in the options menu or like i don't know it we can t- uh, game you know we can talk about it forever but it's just like free money um <laughs> why don't you want it yeah for sure like we we can move on from this conversation a little bit and so just come back to basic video game questions. And this is one I've been asking guests a lot more lately. You obviously grew up with a Nintendo and also a Dreamcast at some point. <laughs> what would you say is your favorite console ever? I don't know if I've felt as comfortable with a console as I do the Switch. That might be kind of crazy because it's a current console. It has its problems. You know, the fact that sometimes the controllers just die and they have not really fixed a solution for that is pretty criminal. But if a game is released on multiple platforms, I will always want it on the Switch because to me, just being able to take it with me, just being able to sit on the couch, like to me, that's perfect. So yeah, I think the Switch is probably my favorite, but it it definitely has its huge, huge drawbacks. But it's been the console I've been able to persuade more people to get. It's such a, it's affordable enough. Like recently my partner had a surprise like operation and was sort of bedridden for a few weeks. And that was when he was just like, okay, I'll buy a switch. And now is like fully in. It was just like cheap, cheerful entertainment. And now I think the other consoles can be a little bit more intimidating. 
Sure, I can definitely understand it. It's very, very good as a console to on-ramp people into video games. There are a lot of casual experiences that are very welcoming. There's a lot of core experiences that a lot of people want to play. Your Mario's, your Zelda's, and then there's just you know great intro games on there. Stardew Valley, Animal Crossing. Mm. There's a great core appeal for a casual base, and then there's just like such an expansive library that seems like it can appeal to any type of gamer who really wants to get into something. So I do think that that's a very salient point on your end. Going closer to our subject (laughs) a little bit on uh, Zelda. Zelda is my favorite franchise in any video games. I'm playing through the Yakuza series right now. That's definitely climbing the ranks. I'm on Kiwami 2. Fantastic series, and I'm really excited for you to get into that series too. Just to very briefly like cover the core appeal. It is very similar to those Shenmue games, but it is so much more refined. The, the, the little sub stories that you run into are just very, very sweet and entertaining. It is able to balance a whole lot of different tones really well. Uh, I guess I just really need to get my Akusa thoughts out there before we talk about <laughs> Zelda. Great, great series. Can't wait for you to play those. On to Zelda. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the Zelda franchise is, you know, one of my, is my favorite franchise in any video game. Ocarina of Time was my first video game I've ever played. What do you think of the Zelda franchise overall? So I do love it. I've played all of them. They're pretty much always day one purchases. I bought and played Triforce Heroes, so I'm I'm pretty in. But that that that, that reveals <laughs> a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't have anyone to play it with, but mm-hmm. I played it myself. But I I would say I've always been much more of a Mario fan. That's my go-to. I'd probably go like Pokemon, like Mario, Pokemon, then Zelda. And on some days, even like Kirby is like beating it. (laughs) That's nothing against Zelda. I just love all these franchises so much. And I think to Zelda's credit, I think it's good that they are actually fairly, um, fairly restrained. They don't pump them out. We don't get Zelda Golf and Zelda Tennis and Zelda whatever. Another game I had, Link's Crossbow Training. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I, I guess I, I don't get the um, rap. Like I, to be honest, here's here's a good example. Like Tears of the Kingdom, I kind of just was not hyped these last like six years at all or whatever. Uh, until this final trailer, I was like, yeah, I'll get it. And now I'm properly like counting down the days, and I'm really excited. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just I think other things were my priority. And my history with Zelda is kind of, we played the first three Mario Brothers on loop in my house, just over and over again on the NES. But I didn't play a Zelda game, I think, until Ocarina. I know Link's Awakening was somewhere in there, but I'm I'm pretty sure we played, we bought that after Ocarina as, as like, ooh, they put a Zelda game on the Game Boy. <laughs> I don't know, I might have just been a bit too young, but I like could do the first three temples or dungeons. I don't think I really like played much as adult Link. I I enjoyed moving Link around, but I may have just been a bit too young to like fully engross myself in the game, but I loved it. And I was really excited for Majora's Mask. And I remember the build up to that. I remember seeing the screenshots. I remember being like so hyped. But then when we bought it, I have two older brothers and that game only has two save files. So... (laughs) I wasn't able to play it. And I remember that day, not that well, but I just remember putting the cartridge in and seeing the two files and and just like being shocked. And they'd never done that before. I felt so betrayed. I guess this kind of leads into why Wind Waker is important to me because 
I had that moment. I bought a strategy guide of Majora's Mask to read the game instead of play it. I remember seeing the Space World trailer for... Uh, not the Space World trailer, the, like, the demo, the, the, the fake... Not the fake, but you know when they did that GameCube preview and it was like Link fighting Ganondorf and it was like Ooh. right, it was like it was a tech demo for that yeah. the GameCube, but it showed Zelda characters and therefore that's what Zelda's going to look like on the GameCube, obviously. Yeah, you know I was excited. Those new Zelda, we were definitely going to get a GameCube. <laughs> it's so funny thinking back. I was just like, I hope this one has three save files. Not really, kind of getting um, memory cards were coming, but. I remember seeing, it must have been in a magazine or just like screenshots on on a website, but when they revealed the Space World uh, Wind Waker trailer with the new art style, I truly remember thinking like, yes, like they made a Zelda for me. I remember the backlash, but I was a true like, you don't know what you're talking about. It's going to be the best one ever. And part of this, like another like tragic game betrayal was... I was really looking forward to um, Twelve Tales Conquer sixty four, the like the the Conquer game that was going to be more like Banjo. And I remember the moment when a, a Nintendo magazine we bought revealed that it changed to Conquer's Bad Fur Day and was going to be an eighteen plus, and I couldn't play it anymore. Oh no! I remember that being like another betrayal. And like a Mario RPG I mentioned never came out in Europe. I remember reading Nintendo magazines like previewing that and then them saying it's not coming out where you live. So having two older brothers and i love my brothers they're like my best friends but they decided what games we played and so there was a lot of games that i would read about in magazines and become kind of obsessed with but never own and i would like draw characters from them and sort of imagine what the games were like were like but never get them but when the gamecube came out um my eldest brother i think he was just about to go to university and leave home and i can't remember what was going on with my other brother But Wind Waker was like my Zelda game, the one that I bought. And I think it's the first Zelda game I ever completed. Maybe one of the first games of that like length that I saw all the way through. Back then games, games took me ages to complete. And um, we like took it on holiday. There's this like in UK, there's Cornwall, which is um, the little tale at the end. Um, and it's like a sunny sort of holiday resort place. We drive, we drove down to Cornwall and I took my GameCube with me. And so we like went on vacation and I played Wind Waker in a seaside town. There were seagulls going, there was boats, you know, it was very much like immersive. <laughs> yeah, it was immersive. And like, we took it back. I just really remember like being so proud of myself that, cause I had watched my brothers complete games. I like would sit and watch them play games a lot. But I felt so proud of myself that like I had finished this one first. So it was just like a big deal to me. And I remember like telling them about Wind Waker rather than them telling me about Majora's Mask. It felt right. like a real power shift or or something. And since then, yeah, I've just played every Zelda game. I, I, I really love them. I don't think any of my opinions on the games are that controversial. Like I think they line up with a lot of critical consensus. Okay. I got a few friends who like hate breath of the wild because of like how much it changed the formula but to me it like arrived at the exact moment they needed to but i think wind waker to me it's like when you say link i think of this link when you say like moblins and ganon i'm, I'm it's this version and like i was playing minish cap this week like i i loved that this art style 
stayed for a few games that yeah. it, it's not just wind waker but it obviously had two kind of direct sequels but also minish cap and four swords and, and toon link is like a legitimate link you know designed for the character so it's really good yeah the Zelda series means a lot to me. Uh, you mentioned the Dev- the Majora's Mask story that you told specifically is very devastating. Uh, my my first introduction to the series was Ocarina of Time. I was born in '96. One of my most like vivid game memories from like my early childhood was just them playing Ocarina of Time, and I remember them getting Major- my older brothers getting Majora's Mask Christmas 2000, and it's just kind of like, whoa, this is more Ocarina of Time. Mm. I didn't really have a full grasp on like truly the nature of video games and just the idea of like me being used to one thing and then the you know aesthetics of something sort of being the same engine just being boosted that that blew me away just because like there's more of this game in our house now oh my god and over over the time like you know because ocarina time was my first game i always kind of defaulted to that one being my favorite but uh, truly i would always play majora's mask more I was mm. so used to majora's mask and like that that atmosphere that world was so unique it really made me reflect on a lot of stuff a lot more. Like Ocarina of Time was just a really good Zelda game. It was really huge and epic, but Majora's Mask just had so much more to do because of how different it was. And just the tones and the existential nature of it all really, really struck a chord with a kid who was probably too young to really reckon with that stuff in a healthy way. Hmm. So that that that's why that one is been my favorite over the years and i'll talk about other zelda games uh because so much of it is a reaction to ocarina time and so much of it is a reaction to the games after ocarina of time how Mm. wind waker interacts with twilight princess how twilight princess informs the next game after that and so on so i'll talk more about my zelda relationship in the core discussion but before i move on you know you said that you obviously had other games that you wanted to talk about you mentioned persona 5 being a game that means a lot to you earthbound are there any other like major formative games for Hamish that you just want to shout out? I guess the original Paper Mario was a big deal for me. As I mentioned many times, like there was a bunch of big RPGs that didn't come out in the UK. So the ones that did, I was really uh, obsessed with. And again, with two older brothers, they sort of dictated what games we played and they weren't as into RPGs. They played a lot of shooters and stuff. And so when I started being able to buy games myself, I would just buy anything with just like a little anime boy on the cover because I <laughs> I knew I'd be into it. I love Tales of Symphonia, um, Skies of Arcadia, that kind of era. And then I kind of stopped playing them for a long time and it was Persona 5 that truly got me back into it. Another game was Nino Kuni 1 and 2, but especially 2. I played that first and uh, I love those games. I mean, I've got a whole list of games to recommend at the end uh, based yeah. on Wind Waker, but I've completely forgot that Nino Kuni is similar in its sensibilities of uh, I know the term like cozy game may be like overused or whatever, but like it's a comfort game. I there's something about being able to play a Studio Ghibli film that no other RPG can really capture. If a term fits, use it. If if it's a cozy yeah. game, it's a cozy game. Those are good recommendations. If you if you're looking for I know you play these games for this podcast, so whenever someone recommends an RPG, you're like Jesus Christ, not another one. Because <laughs> they can be long. But mm-hmm. I think the first Nino Kuni is pretty short. I'll definitely keep these games in mind. Uh when uh on our for a rainy day, which is what I use to describe uh whenever I'm unemployed next, I'll definitely uh <laughs> check these games out. 
But yeah, no, thank you so much for giving me some insight into the games that you like, the Zelda series in general, and just talking about game preservation a little bit with me. But it's time for us to get into the main core discussion about the game that you picked, a game that I also consider one of my favorites of all time. Just a gorgeous, tremendously well-aged video game, both mechanically and visually. I am, of course, talking about The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker. The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker is the 10th main installment of the action-adventure Legend of Zelda series and the first of the mainline games to be released on the Nintendo GameCube. It was developed and published by Nintendo, with Eiji Aonuma serving as the game's director. Aonuma previously directed The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time and The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, and would go on to direct Twilight Princess and continue to serve as the project manager of the Zelda series to this day. You may recognize him now as the sweet man they brought out multiple Nintendo Directs, to apologize for not having any updates about the Breath of the Wild sequel. Uh, a very low blow because he does seem like a very sweet man trying his best. Um, the game had four composers, Kenta Nagata, Hajime Wakai, Toro Minegishi, and Koji Kondo, who was the primary uh, composer for most of the Zelda games up to this point. Script and event planning were done by Mitsuhiro Takano and Hajime Takahashi, and Shigeru Miyamoto, who we referenced earlier, and Takashi Tezuka, uh, were the game's producers. Aonuma, the game's director, was very secretive to Miyamoto about the development of this game because he feared that Miyamoto would be apprehensive about the game's cartoonish, cel-shaded art direction. As expected, uh, Miyamoto was actually not a fan, uh, but allowed it because the developers were enthusiastic about the style and because it would have taken much longer to develop a more realistic-looking Zelda game. The art style of this game may be cute and simple, but the story is not, actually. The world of The Wind Waker is a series of islands scattered across the Great Sea. The game's prologue briefly tells the story of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, where Link, the hero of time, defeated Ganon, only to return back in time to live out his childhood rather than remain an adult in the future that Ganon created. Generations passed and Ganon returned, but the hero of time did not. The people prayed to the gods to save this kingdom from evil, but no one knows what became of Hyrule. Centuries later, an island on the Great Sea, which passed down the legend of the hero of time for generations, carries on a custom where boys who come of age dress in the green tunics like the hero of time did. They do this as a way of carrying on his legacy and as a way to raise courageous men who aspire to take down evil whenever or wherever it may appear. Now, a young boy named Link, who is also the name of the hero of time we just mentioned, uh, is celebrating his birthday and comes of age and dons the green tunic of the Hero of Time. That very same day, a young, blonde, pointy-eared pirate named Tetra is dropped by a gigantic bird into the woods of this island. Link rescues Tetra, only for his sister, Errol, who also has blonde hair and pointy ears, to be grabbed by the gigantic bird that just kidnapped Tetra. Link must leave his hometown island of Outset and his grandma, who raised him, in order to rescue his sister with the help of Tetra's pirate crew. They journey to the Forsaken Fortress, where Link quickly realizes he is poorly equipped to save his sister, and a mysterious talking red boat, who calls himself the King of Red Lions, offers to help him along the journey to vanquish this great ancient evil that has captured his sister. He also gives him a conductor wand called the Wind Waker, a tool that Link can use to control the direction of the winds. Shenanigans ensue. 
The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker was released in North America and Europe in 2003. Other games released in 2003 include Beyond Good and Evil, Mario Kart Double Dash, Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga, Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, Beautiful Joe, Prince of Persia Sands of Time, Final Fantasy X-2, Jack 2, the console version of Soul Calibur 2, the GameCube version of which featured Link as a playable fighter, and another game we previously covered on the show, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Before we get further into this discussion, Hamish, have you played any of these games? I played almost all of them. I've played all of the ones you listed that came out on Nintendo consoles. Mm-hmm. As I said, I haven't got to Final Fantasy X-2 yet, but I do know it's the one with the, like, it's the one the gays like. <laughs> so I'm excited. <laughs> wow. Like, honestly, the, the Mario RPG franchise is is so important to me. So Superstar Saga, I could have easily talked about on the show. Beautiful mm-hmm. Joe, haven't played in years, but like it was such an exciting game when it came out. I kind of can't believe it's the same year as this because I always picture it much later in the GameCube's lifespan. Right, because um, it's part of that like, Capcom 5 deal and Resident yeah. Evil 4 was a part of that and that didn't come out until like two years later. Yeah, um, I was literally like lining them up on my fingers like, yep, played, 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 played. Um, <laughs> it's a good year. I mean, it's a good year if you are a Nintendo fanboy like me and... I guess it's also a good year in retrospect. Like at the time, maybe, I don't know, was the GameCube doing so well? I don't know, but um, pretty good. No, solid, solid year for games. As you can tell, you know, I'm also a huge Nintendo fan. I loved Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, and I also mm-hmm. love the Mario RPG games, uh, Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga. I'm actually planning on replaying now that it's on Switch Online. Yeah. Very excited to revisit that one. Yeah, I played all of those. Yeah. I think any year that a mainline Zelda and a Mario Kart and a Mario RPG comes out, that's a pretty good year for Hamish. For sure. I completely understand that. It's a, it was a great crop, great crop of games. Mm. Uh, but what ultimately made you settle on The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker? Well, truthfully, Earthbound had been done. Persona 5, too long to cover. But this, these three, I definitely think, have become my, like, my Triforce. My, like, mm-hmm. the games that make me... And as I said, like Wind Waker was my Zelda game. It was the one that I got to complete. It was, it felt very much geared to my interests. I played it throughout that year. I must have played these other games, but it's, I truly didn't feel any hurry to finish it. I wanted to like see every single island. And this was definitely a time when my brother was leaving to go to university. I was sort of going online a bit more. I was, I guess, becoming a far more aware of my own tastes, my own personalities, in the sense that, you know, I love my brothers. I wanted to be like them. And when they were leaving, it was kind of me realizing, I decide what games come into the house and like, what, what do I want to play? I think all three of those games I mentioned, Earthbound, Persona 5 and Wind Waker, it's almost less about the game and more about where I was when they came out. I think I said that just a few minutes ago about Pokemon, but it's true. I think those kind of pivotal moments in your life, I can picture myself playing Wind Waker. I can like see myself, how I was sat, how I, where, where I was in my life. You, it's funny that you mentioned Mario and Luigi because that was a game that also inspired me to become an artist and want to play it full time, strangely. I find the sprites in that game really beautiful. 
And the same with Wind Waker. There was a time this year when all of my characters started having Wind Waker eyes and I would try and draw in this art style and just like go online and share my art and essentially begin the kind of road that led me to being a comic artist. As I said, like I, I loved Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask kind of from a distance. I couldn't really like get into them as much as I wanted to, but Wind Waker felt like if I was going to make a game, this is what I wanted it to be. It really became like my personality for a while. I like would tell people, there's, it's funny, like I, <laughs> to play a game and instantly be like, this is my favorite game ever and tell people like, that's the best game of all time. And it's <laughs> funny looking back because we'll get into it. This is a flawed game. This is yeah. like extremely flawed in some ways. Yeah. And the flaws of this game are so well known, but the fact that I've talked to so many people and it's their favorite game, it's like its charm and its heart truly wins out. Like we, you can talk for an hour about how frustrating this game is and still at the end of it be like, it's the best game ever. And I don't know why it's like, <laughs> and it's funny, you were talking about Miyamoto not being a fan. I remember in the lead up to this game, there was an E3 presentation where Shigeru Miyamoto was playing the game on a big screen and he couldn't get past a room. He was really frustrated. Well, not frustrated. He was obviously presenting, but he defeated an enemy and he, you needed to pick up that enemy's sword and bash through some uh, wood sort of barrier on a doorway, but he couldn't find that sword. Whether he couldn't see it or it had been like clipped out of the room or something but they, this big presentation of this game he was just like circling this room trying to work out how to get out for a really long time mm -hmm. i think just that memory the original space world trailer it's not just a game that means a lot to me it's like the first time i became aware of the hype of a game coming out that i was looking forward to i think another game was maybe pokemon gold and silver mm -hmm. but this was similar time so it was like a true day one, it's coming out tomorrow, I need to go get it kind of memory for me. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate you telling that story. Uh, and it also answers my sort of question about like what your first, first exposure was to that game because you kind of baked all that in there. It's clearly a very transformative and transitional game for you because you talked about how it not only informs your ambition into going into art, but also just like your relationship with the medium of video games just changing entirely, whether that is how you interact with them and getting excited for them or just like being able to sort of claim them as your own and that point is something that i really strongly identify with because i have my own like i still very vividly remember my my first exposure with this game and i do have to sort of color in with this story with a little bit of family history i talk mm. about my older brothers a lot and like you they were sort of the taste makers of my home uh mine were eight and nine years older than me uh, i was born in 96 they were born in 87 and 88 and they have a different father than me. I don't think I ever made, a, made that clear that they're technically half-brothers, but I've always grown up considering them my, my whole brothers. I've known them my entire life. They aren't anything other than my whole brothers. Mm. But my father uh, inevitably got divorced from our mother. And that you know created a space where it wasn't just like our shared household anymore, but there was half a week where I was with my father and not with my brothers. And that was sort of my area where I guess I just sort of had to figure out my own tastes mm. and not just sort of watch my older brothers play video games or play the video games that they got but i was able to sort of get my own games in there too because they were the people who had the zelda video games and i was the one watching them play and when i came back home from like kindergarten or whatever i would play the nintendo 64 and 
try my best to actually play those games myself. And they were well into their teens by the time this game came out. Um, so I was the one who was like getting a GameCube at my my dad's house and playing this game. And I would bring it back from like my weekend trips and let them play it uh, on the GameCube that one of my older brothers had. But ultimately, it was me who was sort of like, this was my first time. <laughs> Dad says I get to pick the Zelda game <laughs> um, experience. Like I'm the one bringing the Zelda game to them instead of the other way around. So like you said, a dynamic shift. You know, go ahead. I mean, sorry to interrupt, but like, I do wonder if this game was designed for the little brothers. <laughs> like, it's definitely intentionally easier than Majora's Mask. And the art style is obviously meant to be more appealing to younger kids, I suppose. And I just wonder if it was part of the development process where they thought the kids who grew up with Ocarina of Time, we're not making this for those like older teenagers, those 20 year olds. We're making this for kids again we're making this for young link we're making this for the little brothers and the little sisters yeah i'm sure if i were ambitious enough i could make a youtube video essay making a case that the gamecube (laughs) was for the younger siblings and like pointing to the form factor of the gamecube being a lunchbox and you know Mm -hmm. who you know who always had to be luigi in video games the 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 younger brother and you know what the launch title for the gamecube was luigi's mansion that's right just doing all that sort of stuff and then also just breaking into like the weird convoluted experimental nature of the GameCube in general and how that, you know, informs a generational mm. divide or whatever. But point being, I do think you have a point there. It does feel like a younger brother system when you put it that way. Yeah. And I think we'll get into it, but I I have a lot of feelings and thoughts about Wind Waker's story and themes and how it is about the kind of younger generation kind of reclaiming their own destiny and not following the storyline that's been laid out for them by previous Zelda legends. For sure. I'm still not actually done telling my story about like you didn't interrupt me. I'm not saying that, but like <laughs> that's sort of just like the context for like my exposure to this game. Uh, I got a GameCube at my dad's house Christmas of 2003. At this point I'm like 7 years old. And it was the solid black GameCube that was bundled with the Legend of Zelda Collector's Edition. And that Collector's Edition came with the original Legend of Zelda, Zelda 2, Ocarina of Time, and Majora's Mask. And this was my first ever exposure to Zelda 1 and Zelda 2 because obviously I'd seen everything there is to see in the first in the, in the Nintendo 64 Zelda games, but I'd never seen Zelda 1 and Zelda 2 before. I wasn't even acutely aware that they existed as a seven-year-old, mm. frankly. So this was my first ever exposure to those games. I got to play those in my own space. And since I was only seven, the NES Zelda games were a bit too confusing for me. And obviously, I didn't really have a need to play Ocarina or Majora because I already had those on the the Nintendo 64. But the game also had a 20-minute demo of The Wind Waker on it. And I played those demos over and over and over and over again. They had like three different areas of the game that you could play around in. I think one of them was... Forsaken Fortress. Another one was the Windfall Island 20-minute demo, and then Dragon Roost Island 20-minute demo. So all very early game stuff. But I was captivated by it. I was so floored by how forward-thinking this video game was. Like, oh my god, there's a free-moving camera. The art style is like the most vibrant graphics I'd ever seen. A Zelda game can look like this? Jesus. So I'm just just enamored just playing these 20-minute demos over and over and over again. And I guess my dad caught on to how much I desperately wanted to play Wind Waker and how much I was just playing this demo because a few months later, he got my younger brother and I the full game. 
And this was a very distinct memory for me because it was one of the very few instances I was ever given a video game outside of like the context of a, of a birthday or a holiday. My, my family wasn't want to do that. Like I think maybe two video games I'd ever was given from a family member were outside of that context. And the other one was like Mario Party 5. So Wind Waker, tremendous, 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 just out of nowhere gift to get. Uh, so I'm very grateful to my dad in this one specific instance where he caught on to how much I was playing a game and got it for me. Very, very good. Very life-changing game for me, mm. obviously. And it's obviously a life-changing experience to not just me, as evidenced by your story about it, but unfortunately, it's very difficult to sort of play this game in today's setting. And I'm going to talk about that a little more in this little segment that I do every episode called No Country for Old Games. There are no more kings in the summering lands. Only the place, only its people, only its magic remain, as if such things were so small. This is the Silver Age, an age of lords and companies, of warless, wandering swordsmen, of young ruins and heroes history will soon forget. Join us for Argent, an actual play podcast by Sasha Renault and Evan Swamy, featuring two GMs, a custom game system, and original music. This show is brought to you by the Moonshot Podcast Network. Listen every other Thursday wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at ArgentPod. Hamish, video game preservation means a great deal to me. And one of the goals of this podcast, as you are well aware, is to bring attention to the issue of making older games readily available for those who wish to play them. The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker is one of our favorite games, and I believe, and as you've said earlier, you also believe that anybody who wants to play it should be able to access it without any barriers or hurdles. As this game teaches us, however, the passage of time can make even legends fade away. So let's see how easy it is for new players to actually play this game. So every episode, we take the game we discuss and rate its availability on a scale of A to arg and arg is how frustrated i am that people can't easily access this game and is in no way me covertly advocating for piracy piracy is what tetra does we don't <laughs> we we don't do that here but before we get into the history of this game's availability in the year since the release i have to ask you hamish when you get the urge to revisit this game how do you do it i actually do own the gamecube disc and i probably do own a gamecube i definitely have a wii um they're probably at my parents house and you can play GameCube games on the Wii. So I can play the original. I would probably opt for the HD remake on the Wii U just because it's plugged in and <laughs> uh, I have that as well. But I have a love-hate relationship with the HD uh, remaster. It fixes many of the common complaints. It uh, runs beautifully. It's got the fast sale. It streamlines certain segments. I also personally think it doesn't understand the appeal of the original art style. It does look very polished, and there's moments it looks beautiful, but it has these sort of intense bloom filters and lighting effects, which I believe is the reason the game even exists, because they were trying to work out sort of dynamic lighting for Breath of the Wild, so they ported Wind Waker to the Wii U to sort of test those out. But whereas everything in the GameCube game just looks graphic and flat and 
like you're watching a cartoon, just perfectly realized. I think the style of Wind Waker HD looks a lot more like uh, watching a kind of action figures. Everything kind of has a kind of gradient. Sometimes that looks really beautiful. They look like little vinyl toys, but it's not quite to my tastes. So that is a way to play it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the Wii U eShop closed like a week ago or two weeks ago. So um, <laughs> it is now lost media, I'm guessing you're about to say. Mm, well, let's talk about it a little bit. So the Wind Waker was originally released on a Nintendo GameCube in December of 2002 in Japan and in 2003 in other territories. Uh, the GameCube was how I originally played this game, as we just discussed, it was also how you played it. And this would be the way we would continue to do so for years and years to come. My younger brother and I, my younger brother specifically still has our copy of the original GameCube disc. We live states away now, so unfortunately I don't have access to it. So I wasn't able to replay this game at all for this episode. But it's cool that we still have that original disc that we got, ooh, 20 years ago. Uh, GameCube games remain backwards compatible on the standard Nintendo Wii. So even if you never owned a GameCube, it was still possible to play this game as long as you had a physical copy of the game. In 2013, a new high-definition version of The Wind Waker was released on the Wii U, the one you just referenced. This version, developed over the course of half a year, features HD graphics and new lighting with some minor changes in quality of life improvements to the actual interactive portions of the game. Uh, The Wii U gamepad could be used to navigate menus, eliminating the need to pause the game to look at a map or adjust your inventory. Uh, Gyroscopic controls were also added, which would make aiming in first person just a lot more intuitive. The swift sail, like you said, was added to allow you to sail across the sea more quickly. Just a lot of minor quality of life improvements that just really, really added up to really changing your core experience with the game and how much time you're spent just going in menus and shifting things around. So this was like just cutting a bunch of minor annoyances, but to your point, it did also remove like the sort of yellows of the game and just upped the bloom and how you put very beautifully just sort of changed it from looking like a cartoon to looking like action figures of a cartoon in a realistic-ish looking world, which has its own unique beauty to it, mm. as you said, but it does also sort of fundamentally change the art style that was so controversial at the time, but came to be widely beloved. I would say that... <laughs> One of the best aged games of the GameCube in the early 3D era is this very specific game. Totally. Especially because I think Twilight Princess, which was a reaction to this. I'm not a Twilight Princess hater, but I do think it's one of the uglier games of the series just because it's really going full textures, textures, textures on everything. And Wind Waker still, I still think the GameCube game looks better than the HD remake. Sorry. Yeah, there's definitely different reasons to play different games one is better on an experiential level and then one of them is just more of an artistic feast for the eyes and a real appreciation for uh the form that it takes other quality of life changes is like oh link's starting wallet is deeper so he can store more rupees at the beginning of the game the picto box which is another really appealing mechanic where you can not only just store three pictures at a time but store up to a dozen pictures and link is able to take selfies anytime that he wants to which sort of created its own mini game into itself where people on the Miiverse section of the Wii U were trying to take the most ridiculous selfies in the scariest places possible. It, it was great. Mm. It was honestly a really great addition. Like the, I, There was a lot of good work done in this totally. port. And I do think that there is an appeal to the changed visual style. I agree. But I do wish that there was an option in this version to go back to the 2003, um, the flatter colors, I guess would be a, how you said it. 
The only major change the HD version made on an actual story structure, structural level was the uh, structure of the Triforce Shard quest that makes up most of the game's uh, ending act. This was a controversial fetch quest section in the late game that was altered to be more streamlined than in the original. We'll come back to this. <laughs> we'll come back to this. We won't talk about this now, but we'll absolutely come back to this. Point is, uh, because of these quality of life changes and its visual enhancements, there is a case to be made that the HD version of Wind Waker is some people's definitive edition. It was well-received at the time. Obviously, the visual style is still controversial, and we do wish there were alternating ways of playing this game. But if you do have a version, if you do end up with this version of the game, this is a more than valid way of experiencing that story. I had this version of the game too. I loved it. It's 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 great. I'm not talking down to it at all, but it really just comes down to taste in terms of its visual style. But this comes back to our availability conversation, right? There is currently no way to legally purchase (laughs) either of these games. So regardless, uh, it's not like you're just going to be able to go to any GameStop in the world and just find, ah, hey, I'm going to have to agonize over which Wind Waker to buy because no, you can't find either of them. Really, you might find them in a used game store at a markup. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Wii U eShop has been discontinued as of March of 2023, uh, last month as of the recording of this episode. It's really just either the secondary market or nothing, or I guess there are other ways of playing it, <laughs> but uh, you'll, you'll have to get a little creative. You'll have to sail the high seas to, to find a version of this game, so to speak. So yeah, we are going to give this game an R, uh, unfortunately. Like Link with the Triforce pieces, you'll need to sail the high seas in order to find a way to play this game. Fans have been clamoring for Wind Waker HD and Twilight Princess HD to be ported to the Nintendo Switch for years, or at least some version of these games to be ported to the Switch. And it's not an unreasonable thing to ask for, if you ask me. Because multiple Wii U exclusives, such as Nintendo's own Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze, Pikmin 3, Mario 3D World, Mario Kart 8, even Captain Toad, Treasure Tracker, have been ported to the Nintendo Switch from the Wii U. And not only that, right, but Skyward Sword, a more recent Zelda entry that was developed for the Nintendo Wii, was ported to the Switch with an HD upgrade back in 2021. So this isn't an unimaginable thing to do. And this wasn't the only GameCube game ported to the Switch either, right? Mario Sunshine was included in Mario 3D All-Stars, which released in 2020. Metroid Prime Remastered came out this past February, and even Bates and Kaitos 1 and 2, uh, a game that did not sell well in the GameCube era, uh, is getting an HD port later this year on the Switch. This obscure-as title on the GameCube is getting an HD port to the Switch, but there is no Wind Waker or Twilight Princess yet. It's super fucking frustrating. We're willing to pay Nintendo. You know we're easy marks. We know you hate us. We hate ourselves. <laughs> we don't respect ourselves. We will pay for it. You know we'll pay for it. This isn't a this isn't a test. It'll sell. It'll sell. <laughs> that's the thing. Like, is there a ranking that's like one high of an arg, which is because this is a mainline Zelda game, they will always want to sell it to us. We'll just have to wait. I'm pretty sure if it's not on the Switch, it'll be on the Switch too. They'll mm-hmm. just bring them back. But it is frustrating that they treat this all like the Disney vault and it's not about making something always available. It's always about scarcity. The whole Mario 3D, like you said, Sunshine was ported. It's now currently unpurchasable. Yeah, that's that would be downgraded to an ARG anyway. <laughs> it's frustrating. I mean, I actually have more gripes with the Twilight Princess HD just because um, my husband played it 
uh, on stream during lockdown. And um, there's many, many treasure chests in that game that simply unlock a stamp to use on Miiverse. And it'll say that you have not completed this dungeon. There's three more, uh, you know, treasure chests. And he'll go in looking for them and it'll be a stamp for Miiverse, something he cannot use anymore. So even if you do buy these games, a lot of the functionality is just gone. Yeah, very good point. Like one of the major changes from uh, the GameCube version, we talked about the Tingle Tuner to the Game Boy Advance uh, functionality of the GameCube. Obviously, the Wii U didn't have Game Boy Advance functionality, so they replaced that with like these uh, Tingle bottles that you could throw in the ocean that you could find that other players left behind online. And that is a completely non-functional service now that the online functionality mm. of the Wii U is no longer applicable. And what's weird is that like the 3D remakes for um ocarina and majora were also i think pretty great they're actually really good at remaking these games i mean skyward sword i was always a big defender of that control scheme but they knew that was a complaint so when they remade it or or ported it they fixed that or they gave you options so like there is an appreciation of the fans uh wishes somewhere Mm there but um i guess from a business point of view they just will always see like limited releases or or keeping it scarce as far more vital than having these games always available so we're not the news or anything like that so i'm not saying that this is what's going to happen at all but people have been saying that there probably is an hd port of these things just ready to go whenever and they're just waiting for a lull in the release schedule to drop them i'll Mm. believe it when i see it Uh, I mean, like that's was the story behind uh, Metroid Prime Remastered is that they were sitting on it for like well over a year and they just had an opportunity to release it. So they dropped it. And I thought like that could be the case. But until that happens, I'm still going to keep this at an arc. I'll update it. I I update. I'll update my list. I had to do it before the Metroid Prime episode released even. (laughs) But until now, it's just arc because this this game isn't available to purchase easily in any way, shape or form. Yeah, which is just nuts for one of the like greatest games of all time. Yeah, it's one of the most acclaimed games of all time. This is a game that was released to critical acclaim, has a 96 out of a 100 on Metacritic, the review aggregation website. This is the same score held by the GameCube version of Twilight Princess and the Wii U version of Breath of the Wild. If you look on the website, it is the 44th highest rated game of all time on Metacritic, as of the time of this <laughs> recording at least. In terms of sales, it was internally considered a disappointment by Nintendo, but it was the most pre-ordered video game Nintendo ever Nintendo ever had at the time, uh, thanks to the inclusion of the Ocarina of Time Master Quest as a pre-order version. And it would go on to be the fourth best-selling Nintendo GameCube game ever, only outsold by Mario Sunshine at number three, Mario Kart Double Dash at number two, and Smash Brothers Melee at number one. So fourth best-selling Nintendo GameCube game, clearly highly popular justified itself to get a a remake on the Wii U, but at the end of the day, we're not here to reduce the legacy of The Wind Waker to a series of numbers and figures. We're here to discuss its impact on the people who played it. So let's get into that, Hamish.
What do you like about this game, The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, that you wish more video games in general would do? Hmm. Yeah, I've thought about this question a lot. And <laughs> there's a lot more to this game than just the art style, which we're going to talk about. But I do kind of wish more mainline AAA franchises would just go buck wild one game with the art. I know there's definitely like there's loads of spin-off games that make things chibi or, or do something but how funny would it be if like last of us part three was just like cell shaded and that was just <laughs> like that was the intention i think the reason for this art style in wind waker i think is thematic i think it is part of the story and i don't just mean making things cute i mean it would be it would be great to see games just go experimental and and change their main character's appearance to fit the story in kind of crazy ways. I mean, I said I was a big Mario fan, but I think I get frustrated by how uniform those games have started to look, that they have like a canonical look for everything now. They have a house style. Even though like Mario Odyssey, you know, you went to some worlds that are a bit more kind of avant-garde. I think it's just so ballsy and so like inventive to make the sequel to Majora's Mask and the third 3D Zelda game just as far removed from the previous two as, as you possibly can get. I think of Ocarina and Majora as kind of two, you know, sides of the same coin. They are collectively like, quote unquote, the greatest game of all time. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do for the sequel? Do you do that demo trailer, they, that tech demo they showed where they try to like bring Ocarina of Time to the GameCube, or do you just experiment? I've mentioned multiple times on this podcast that I've not really um, gone through the Final Fantasy franchise, but I've never felt very interested in the most recent games because the art style, to me, isn't sort of my cup of tea. Like, to me, Final Fantasy is like, should be chibi, should be like a little mage with a little hat, and it would be great if the next Final Fantasy just went full that, just went extreme, like an HD version of Crystal Chronicles art style, just let's go all out. And I just feel a lot of game companies are a bit too scared. It's crazy that Nintendo did this and kind of took the hit. They must have known that it would be shocking and disappointing. I watched the original Space World <laughs> launch trailer today, and there's such a like awkward clap afterwards from the audience watching this. There's like mm -hmm. gasps. There's just like, is are they for real? Hey, it looks amazing for like an early trailer. Like things are different to the final release, but like there's gags. Link is just like smiling at the camera and stuff like that. I don't know. I think just more companies should be brave and just take a big swing. I agree with that. I think that's a great way of approaching the whole like art direction conversation with Zelda because it's it's a conversation that's been done and I'm happy to talk about it some more. I mean, we talked about how this the art direction of this game has made it age significantly better than a lot of games that were in its contemporary. You mentioned Twilight Princess specifically, but you just sort of mentioned like any sort of game that was just kind of going for like a realistic quote unquote uh, visual design back then hasn't really aged as well. But this game just feels very much like this looks exactly as I remember it looking like it doesn't have like any like everything is cohesive it doesn't look like the shape of it hasn't been morphed from my memory I guess is like my w weird way of saying it. it it holds up 
to your point, like, yeah, I think more games shouldn't necessarily adopt the cell shaded art design specifically because it's been known to age well. But I do think that more developers need to really take into consideration art direction in a long term sense and making sure that their games continue to be played over years and years and sort of seal that legacy. And I know that the games industry isn't really looking at like the long term. They're just sort of looking at or they're the publishers specifically are sort of looking at like making the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time possible. And graphics are just a very good shorthand into like mm. generating excitement for a thing. But really well realized art direction can really just encase a game in this sort of visual amber. Uh, I talked about this in the Final Fantasy VIII episode, even though that game hasn't aged well in a graphical sense, it's still very coherent in its design. And there's still a lot of things that are impressive about its design because they just really knew what they were doing in terms of designing these characters and the world around it. And it works. And I think this game is an even better example of that because of how good it just still looks on its own. Yeah. And I, um, like I said, I think I, the only one I can think of is as a massive flop, but I remember when Bomberman did an, a uh, gritty reboot. Oh yeah. On the Xbox. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a terrible example, but I love the idea of just any franchise saying this is going to be the mainline entry and we're going to experiment. And you know, it's kind of interesting thinking about Zelda post Wind Waker because we had a few games in the same art style as Wind Waker. Twilight Princess was clearly a like, this is for the other fans. <laughs> um, and you know what? I have no, I have no uh, ill will towards it. I actually watched the um, E3 announcement trailer video quite often because just seeing that amount of just like joy and hype can sometimes be infectious. Yeah. To your point, like uh, you talked about the muted reaction in that one video announcing the Wind Waker and showing off its art style. And then famously, the E3 2004 trailer for Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess is like famous for how insane people were going for when it was first revealed because it's like, this was the game we always wanted, that kind of stuff, right? People like what they like, but it is just a very funny retrospective to mm. think like, the game that was controversial at the time, people were derisively calling it Zelda because of the the, the cell shaded design. People dismissing it as cartoonish or kiddie, and you know another reason people were delaying possibly getting a GameCube for this art style that they really were dunking on at the time, only for it to vindicate itself over over time as a as a not only a video game that's very very good, but just a, an art style that just continues to to show that it has legs in terms of aging itself. Yeah, and Twilight Princess um is its reputation kind of goes up and down over the years. I think it's really good and I'm actually going to compare it favorably to some elements of Wind Waker. I think Wind Waker doesn't do as well as Twilight Princess. But I think since then with Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild, they've kind of tried to strike this middle ground where like the house style of Zelda now is bright and colorful. But like the proportions are more ocarina, more like Twilight Princess. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fair. I think I'd be interested to know what they do of Zelda when they're out of this kind of Breath of the Wild cycle. Even in the last few years, we had the, you know, the Link's Awakening remake, which had an entirely different style. And we had Cadence of Hyrule, which had an entirely different style. Even Triforce Heroes, which, you know, was a huge flop. It was still using that style years later. Like they're not afraid to bring back the Wind Waker look um, if it fits the game. 
and like even Link Between Worlds. Sorry to just keep listing Zelda games, but <laughs> like all of these had different unique art styles, but they still feel Zelda. And I think a lot of series just don't have that confidence. Yeah, I guess you could say that Zelda is the biggest series that is still able to comfortably change between art directions uh, in a way that people don't tend to question. Like you were saying, Mario is just kind of stuck in this direction and there's only a little bit of variation depending on like, hey, are the, are the rabbits people developing this game? There's probably going to be a slightly different art style here. But other than that, it's kind of uniform now in a way that it wasn't in the 90s going into the early 2000s where there wasn't yeah. as I much mean, of a, a way of making these things seem as, you know, quote unquote, realistic as they used to. Like how, I mean, it's similar. Paper Mario was a departure, but then that became like uniform. And now all Paper Mario games like have the same look. This is how they look. It definitely feels like a, a time, late 90s, early noughties, where They'd sort of done the transition to 3D in the previous generation. So what do we do now? How do we like do that same feeling where everything feels new again? And I think a lot of games kind of handled that by just changing the way the game looked. But as I said, I think there's more to this game than just its appearance. Sure. But while we are on its appearance, I do have one more note here for my... Yeah. Um, during my research for this episode, I remembered possibly my favorite ever April's Fool april's fools prank that any video game adjacent thing has ever done the april 2005 issue of electronic gaming monthly or egm ran a joke article saying that people who ordered the legend of zelda twilight princess would receive a bonus disc that remade the legend of zelda the wind waker in the twilight princess graphics <laughs> mm. it would also include two new dungeons cut from the original release they also included a very obviously photoshopped picture as evidence that this remake was real the May issue, the issue coming out the following month, included many angry letters from readers who took the article <laughs> at face value and just thought that Nintendo was, yeah, just going to just completely do another video game remade in a completely new art style and add a bunch of stuff to it. I'm not a big prank guy. I'm not big on pranks. I love Jackass, but otherwise I'm not really big on pranks. But I do also believe that it is pretty funny to fuck with gamers, especially if they wanted a Twilight Princess style remake of Wind Waker specifically. That's a very good way to just prick people in the arm at the time. I feel like Twitter is filled with people now who would have been the Zelda-like haters at the time. I think kind of the thing most companies are afraid of more than anything is being laughed at. And I think that can sort of um, clip the wings of their creativity. I'm still just really impressed that this game came out. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad that Aonuma and the developers really stuck to their guns despite the fan reaction being mixed, Miyamoto himself not really knowing how it's going to go, but mm. the, the sheer confidence that they had that this was the right direction to go, and obviously the success of the game when it came out in terms of getting the critical respect that it needed, as well as just the, the, the retrospective of like, man, this is really, really was the right call to make it this art style. I, I'm sure that's been vindicating for them over the past two decades. Moving on from the art style, what are some other things about this game that you just want to talk about? I really do connect with this game's story, this game's world. This is debatable, but my initial reading when I played this game, and just the more I think about it, I don't think you're playing as Link in this game. I think when I was a kid, I wasn't aware of the Zelda timeline and, and all that nonsense. And I took everything at kind of face value. So as you said, it begins with this little recap of Ocarina of Time, and it's definitely set in the same, you know, this isn't just 
imagined remake or whatever, you see evidence of Ocarina of Time. You see um, the sages from Ocarina of Time on some stained glass windows. So this was, you know, a game similar to Breath of the Wild. It's this kind of post-apocalyptic kind of adventure. And at the start of the game, you're just a young boy. It's the first time I'd seen Link not wearing his green tunic. He's in this kind of blue, beautiful, I want to get that shirt, this kind of lobster (laughs) shirt. He doesn't look like Link. You know, we talked about art style. He looks like a, this looks like a different game. And yet you are told you have to put on this green tunic. You have to have this shield. You have to have this sword. You have to pretend to be Link. And he doesn't want to be. He, he looks annoyed at wearing the green tunic. He doesn't have the Triforce in his hand. You know, he's just a boy who is being told that you need to be Link. And you need to behave like Link. And he kind of gets thrust into the story where he has to become Link. You know, if you want to go further with lore, he like, you you have to assemble the Triforce of Courage. You have to collect it. You find that. It's not sort of passed down to you. You pick up the Master Sword and it doesn't work. You have to kind of charge it up. So I feel like a lot of the story is someone trying to make you part of a legend. You're not sort of born into it. And I think the more I think about it, the more like Ganondorf kind of represents those Zelda haters. Those this isn't Zelda. His goal in the game is not to destroy Hyrule, it's to bring it back. To him, like the Hyrule that you find under the sea is like frozen. It's this little snow globe that is like a perfect recreation of what Zelda's supposed to be. It's the Hyrule Castle, it's the Hyrule Castle theme, it's hills, it's and all that stuff. And he wants to bring that back. And I feel like there's this just kind of kind of radical spirit to it, that this is a response to Ocarina of Time, the greatest game of all time. How do you do a sequel to that? Well, you do a story about how we need to move on from Ocarina of Time. And I find something, I mean, Nintendo is not known for its story. These stories are light, but I find something in Ocarina of Time, there's always this impending dread. In Majora's Mask, there's always this impending dread. In Majora's Mask, you have the moon hanging above Hyrule at Termina. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The whole time. And in Ocarina of Time, either Ganondorf is about to invade or he's already won. Like you're just in this kind of sad, impending doom. And in Wind Waker, all of that's below the surface. All of that's literally underground. The world has kind of moved on. You are enjoying your life on your island, Windfall Island. Like, they're concerned with just, like, their own little lives. No one's aware of Ganon. No one's, like, aware of what's going on. They're just... Like, I love the little side quests on Windfall where you're just, like making people fall in love and and helping people find purpose in life. You're doing all these little things. Ganon is trying to like make this a Zelda story. He's like, no, you are the hero. You're the princess. You're supposed to be fighting me. Hyrule's supposed to be here. And I just feel the kind of story of actually, no, we're going to live our own life. We're going to find our own future. Very inspiring. As I said, it was at a time when I was starting to get this independence. And to me, like the boat and the great sea just felt like that kind of realized in game form. You have grown up. This is 
your turn to make your own journey. Um, so that's that. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> no, very, very good points. And I do like the the meta textual conversation on that. Like, obviously, a lot of that story is on the surface. <laughs> Ganon's whole goal is like he comes back and Hyrule isn't there anymore. And that's kind of like his whole lot in life is like, there's a kingdom down there. I need I need that kingdom that has always been every time I've come back, that's always been there. And I need this. Is, this is the one I can do it this time. But no, it's been drowned. It was drowned because we talked about it earlier. The mystery of what happened to Hyrule is they flooded it. They flooded mm. it. And now it's a new world. The Kokiri are now the Kuroks. They evolved so they could adapt to the new land. And instead of being like little children in the woods, they're little plant creatures that mm. we now recognize in Breath of the Wild. The Zora may have evolved into the Rito. I think they sort of imply that <laughs> uh, because like the whole thing with Zora at the time was like the canon was they weren't really salt water. They were more fresh water and seas all salt water. I think that's I think that's the lore explanation or I'm just coloring that in into my mind. I don't remember. Because Zora do appear in later entries alongside the Rito, so it's a bit of a gray area. Yeah, weird tangent. But the whole point is like this is a this is a world that's moved on. With Breath of the Wild, you sort of wake up and it's kind of like a sleepy apocalypse, right? You're third age a man in the Lord of the Rings, where it's like, yeah, things are kind of shitty, but life goes on. Here, it's not even things are kind of shitty. Things are just doing what they're doing, and Ganondorf's really the only one causing problems. Like mm. he destroys Great Fish Isle in his pursuit for power and to sort of change the playing field and add stakes to the story. People are pretty content in their lot in life. And Link is just sort of learning about these cultures along the way. There's no like, we need to go back to the old ways. No, the, the game by the end of the story completely rejects the old ways. And then they sort of have to go on to this sort of exodus into finding like a new like world that they can start on their own terms with their own beliefs that a new Hyrule that's going to be the new promised land for the future for those who need it but nope the old Hyrule is gone the old ways are gone like I like I said I wrote down the last Jedi in my notes like it's very much that kind of story of not a total like rejection but just an idea of like you gotta you gotta move on this isn't the only thing I I glad you brought up the last Jedi because I was thinking that a lot when kind of unpacking my thoughts on this story I think we mentioned Ganon, but the King of the Red Lions goes on a similar arc where he, I mean, one part I'm not, we'll talk about maybe in the sort of negative thoughts about the game is um, Tetra, spoilers, becoming Zelda. Again, it doesn't feel like she's really like got a choice. She gets turned into Zelda and then stays in a room for the rest of the game and basically loses her whole personality. But I think the way that that story works for me is she's allowed to be tetra at the end of the game right and then phantom hourglass like she chooses to go by tetra and not zelda throughout that story yeah i think that's what this game is about and i think there's certain um like at the end of the game you <laughs> stick your sword into ganon's head which is as a kid was the most badass thing i'd ever seen and he turns to stone he like becomes the pedestal for the master sword it's kind of like putting the sword back and kind of ending everything that Ocarina of Time was plot-wise, but also kind of legacy-wise. Like, we are no longer in a world where Ocarina of Time is this, I don't want to say shadow, but like, it's intimidating to follow the greatest game ever. It's intimidating to try and make a new Zelda and always be compared to Ocarina of Time. And I think it's 
the visual of Ocarina of Time ending, fighting Ganon surrounded by fire, and in this surrounded by water, there's this like conversation happening between these two games, I think, of that was us moving into 3D, and that was making a perfect Zelda game. Now, where do we move on from that? Again, at the end of Ocarina, you're made to go back to being a child. It's like obsessed with the past. It's about protecting the legend. And in this, it kind of ends in the opposite way, where it's like, now you get to live. Now you get to make a future together. Right. The reason the hero doesn't appear is because like, this is officially the story that leans into what would become the split Zelda timelines, right? Ocarina of Time being that dividing line of what we initially thought to be two separate, but actually ended up being three timelines. And then this one is a timeline where the adult Link decides, I'm going to go back to my own time and live my life. This is not my future. This isn't my world. I just needed to learn to become the hero I needed to complete my journey. And that journey is complete. I'm going back now. And that leads into Majora's Mask. And then that becomes like the young Link timeline. This is the future adult Link left behind moving forward. With Link gone, that world is kind of over. There is, mm. there's, there's no Link. It's not necessarily, I mean, like, it, you can see it as like abandonment, but it is more like this world technically wasn't supposed to exist. And it can't just live in the shadow of a hero that's no longer there. And it needs to become its own thing. And sure enough, the world adapts to that. Hyrule becomes flooded. The people have literally evolved and don't seem truly to like yearn for some past for some kingdom that none of them are aware of. And Ganon's goals are just going to end up kind of being toxic for this environment that the Great Sea has now become. Everybody has evolved to adapt into the world that they are now in. If you're just going to regress it, like what is the Karaks? What are the Rito in this like big continental land? I think this is all intentional because it's well reported or whatever that Nintendo tends to come up with gameplay and things first and then story later. And I do wonder how much of the story came as a result of the initial response to the Space World trailer. The fact that the game came packaged with the like Master Quest, it's kind of appeasing that Ganon mentality, that sort of nostalgia of, well, that's my Zelda. This is the this is what proper Zelda is. And mm-hmm. I'll try out this new thing. But like when I think of Wind Waker, I think of the little flap that happened that noise that happens when you pick up um like a two disc dvd because it had that little trap door thing yeah <laughs> like to me that's when wake it's the rattly box but i mean the story is not the only reason i like this right but i do think like that's what makes this like story like that's just like so interesting that like this the simplistic art style is like the host to so many interesting story mechanics because this is my favorite story in any zelda game i can go mm. so far as to say that And it's not that any of the other Zelda stories are necessarily bad or anything like that. It's just like this is clearly the one that has the most on its mind and has like the most characterization for its central three. The idea of like Link being the most expressive he's ever been at this point and isn't just a simple conduit for the character and their power fantasy. The fact that Zelda is at this like complex like identity crisis that's being forced upon her because of her ancestry. And Ganon, of course, this being the most characterized Ganondorf has ever been up to this point, and still still is, honestly. Like, Twilight Princess mm-hmm. is the only other iteration of Ganondorf that has appeared since this game. And that's why this Breath of the Wild sequel is, like, so important, because this is the first time there's been a Ganondorf in a mainline entry. 
But it's like this Ganondorf who's just completely out of his world, out of his element, and is forcibly trying to recreate his destiny that the world has completely moved on from. And he has a lot of poetic language about that. He isn't like a sympathetic figure, but he's an understandable figure in this game. Whereas in every other game up to this point, Ganondorf was just the, the personification of evil. Yeah, I mean, the game starts with your sister being kidnapped just because she looks like Zelda from a distance, from a bird's perspective. There's definitely the sense of Ganondorf, he's like trying, he's almost seeking out being defeated. I know, I can't remember the like specific reason he needs Zelda, I'm sure he needs Zelda to like unlock Hyrule. Or yeah, it's so the three pieces of the Triforce, and Zelda always has the Triforce of Wisdom, so clearly I need her. That's, that's yeah. the second piece of the puzzle. And then the third piece is the Triforce of Courage, yeah he awakens he could have probably lived a very happy life no one knows who he is no one is coming looking for him but he like in order to function he kind of needs that battle with link and zelda he's the inciting instant but in the sense that he like he kind of writes his own demise he like (laughs) he kind of makes link appear he kind of awakens there being a link there being a zelda in this world i just find it very interesting and like it's the first game I remember thinking that there was maybe a Zelda timeline, or maybe these games were connected. They weren't just really, you know, they weren't just Mario games, just could happen in any order or whatever. For sure. No, yeah, that's the thing. Like, part of me wonders, like, was the plan always to, like, do a one for me, one for them with the GameCube Zeldas? Or, like, if the fan response had been normal, what would the, the shape of the Zelda franchise be? Because I like Twilight Princess, you know? Yeah. I enjoy Twilight Princess, but there is definitely the whole like, all right, look, here's our here is our rejection of having to be tethered to the chain of Ocarina of Time forever, followed immediately by like, here is functionally a remake of Ocarina of Time. <laughs> there, here is the Great Hyrule. Here are the first three dungeons for you to access the Master Sword, followed by a, a, a series of dungeons all leading up to the fight against Ganondorf in Hyrule Castle. Here you go. It's it's like Ocarina of Time, but there's also a wolf form. Was that deliberate or was that definitely like a fan concession? Because I mean, now in the age of like post The Last Jedi, right? Like that being like, all right, here is our, here is our, like, this story can't be the same story every single time. We need to tell new stories. We need to have new characters. We need to have new stakes. That is the thesis of Star Wars. That at the conclusion, they basically say, we aren't throwing it all away. We're just saying it isn't the same thing anymore. And then the sequel immediately being like, it's the same thing again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But obviously, Twilight Princess is a less extreme version of that because it is a competent game. It's a very <laughs> well-made game. Somehow, Ganondorf returned. Yeah, I mean, as much as it's an Ocarina of Time update, it has Midna. It has Wolf Link. It has all kinds of things that it's really unique to it. And I think one of the funny things about The Last Jedi is you always see people quote the villain who gets proved wrong as saying the like thesis of the movie Mm -hmm. let the past die or whatever but i think similarly that's not what wind waker is saying it's just this is a new link this is a new zelda it's like kind of nice that ganondorf had a break after twilight princess because this game to me feels like his conclusion this is how the actual flesh and blood man ganondorf ends and dies as a sort of getting everything he wants. He's like at the top of Hyrule Castle. He has the Master Sword, you know? Right. He's got what he wanted, but it's all 
being buried under the sea, under the yeah. new world. It's but it's fundamentally a story of like, okay, you care about Zelda, right? You care about the Zelda franchise. Let's ask you to care about the characters a little bit. And to that point going, isn't it fucked up that they're kind of stuck in this battle of destiny for all eternity and future generations have to keep cleaning up after each other? Isn't that a fucked up scenario? Mm. We've talked about this in A Link to the Past episode and the Breath of the Wild episode, because the Breath of the Wild is basically somehow the end of at least one or all of these timelines being like, it literally just keeps creating the state of arrested development every time. And the Wind Waker feels like the first exploration into like examining that because it's Mm. like, isn't it fucked up that Ganon can't be anything but Ganondorf? He has to have, he is completely just trapped because he knows it's like, it's, it's this forever. It's always this forever. And Zelda not having any agency as a character within that because she has to be Zelda. She's being forced to be Zelda. Link having to occupy this role and like him being uncomfortable wearing the tunic and being the hero of the Triforce of Courage thrust upon him. Is that fair? Is that is that an okay thing? No, it's a great game. It's obviously like a fundamentally good game to play. It's not trying to like be a bad experience, but it is trying to make you really reckon with, isn't it? Isn't this all messed up? That mm. because of this franchise being popular, these stories kind of have to go on forever and we kind of need a space to come up with new ideas within this space. Yeah, I'm, it's kind of the superhero problem where, you know, these characters can never have an ending. You can't ever have a storyline where it, Batman realizes, like, it's better for Gotham that he's not Batman because you need another Batman or you need a, an, a someone else to show up to keep making the comics. Which is why I kind of like that the Zelda franchise is just a series of links. They can have their own endings. They can have their own story arcs. What does it matter if this is a real link or not? I just think when I first played it as a kid, my reading of it was like, this is a boy who is pretending to be Link because that's what you Mm -hmm. do on your birthday. I don't think there's ever been a moment. I mean, Breath of the Wild has a ton of these moments, but just the, the moment when Link leaves home and waves back to his grandmother is like to me the most heart-wrenching moment that like per, like link as a character has kind of gone through in these games and i think the fact that he even has a grandmother is like really unique i know he sometimes has family members but in this he has like a full-on family he has a sister and a grandmother and you know the most powerful healing item in the game is your grandmother's soup As much as there is a call to the horizon, there is this constant call back home. You always go back to your grandmother to get the soup before you fight a a tough boss, you know? And I think that's just as kind of powerful, but he like has, he has a life he's actually trying to protect. Yeah, no. And it's like, you're really drawing attention because it is a sad moment. He's also like, this is the most childlike Link has ever looked in a game. I mean, obviously like the beginning of Ocarina of Time he is the young child, but he does become an adult when he has to ultimately cast down evil and wield the Master Sword. This Link doesn't age. When he's wielding the Master Sword, he still has the appearance of a child. Zelda, too, is also a child. Like These are children being dragged into ancient, ancient, ancient wars that have continued to self-perpetuate. And it is ultimately them who live in this new world, as you said, who are radically moving on from it by sticking the master sword into the forehead of <laughs> of, of ganondorf yes yeah i think we've made our point very clear uh, in terms of the story stuff but i actually do want to talk about the gameplay because this has some of my favorite gameplay in any zelda game at least in the combat level 
Yeah. Because I think this is the most fluid and expressive and action-oriented a 3D Zelda has gotten, maybe up until Breath of the Wild. But even then, this is probably the most satisfying to actually whack things with in any Zelda game because of how they react, how the music goes with it, the expressiveness of people when you hit them, how all over the place Link is when he's like doing these dodge rolls. It, it's really fun on a combat level. Totally. I mean, I am a Skyward Sword defender. I think that idea of every fight being a puzzle is really interesting. I mean, I think well, what we've seen of Tears of the Kingdom, that might be the most expansive sort of fighting mechanic in a game, in one of yeah. these games. But with Wind Waker, it really does show you how the style, like you said, the, the way that the music responds to your attacks is something I can't believe more games don't do. Like, as we're having this conversation, is that music playing in your head that like, is for me. And I'm just thinking about how every sword slash is like a, a musical note. It's a crescendo and, every single time you land a hit. Yeah. And rolling behind a dark nut and slicing the uh, armor off is just, oh, so satisfying. One of the best things in a game is when you see a really powerful enemy and you're not scared, but you're just really excited because you're like, these are so fun to fight. And I think that about the dark nuts in this where you hear their like armor coming around the corridor and you're like, here we go. This is going to be fun. You know, I think Breath of the Wild beats it in terms of variety. The amount of different weapons you can have does... Um, I know I found it kind of annoying in this game that whenever you pick up one of the enemy's uh, weapons, it's just like, not fun. It's just like, whack, whack, whack. You don't kind of get unlock a whole new moveset or anything. Right. Too, but it is very fun when you pick it up and then press A to throw it, and then you yes. snipe someone <laughs> from a distance and they get sent flying. <laughs> Totally. And also, this has the best uh, spin attack. The, like, fully charged, like, wow, 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 wow. Oh, the hurricane like, spin, yeah. Yeah, like, that's so fun. And again, he's so expressive. I think there's something about Young Link. I kind of hope that whatever they do after Tears of the Kingdom, they go back to a Young Link. Because I think being that small against enemies that big, just, uh, I don't know, I just think it's more impactful. Right, like, look at the sense of like this game's like sense of power progressions are great too, right? Because the first time you go to the Forsaken Fortress, I know that can be a controversial stealth section of the game because you lose the sword immediately and you have no way of taking on these uh the, the moblins in the base, right? And then by the time you are far enough along in the game, you are taking on moblins like they are basically a normal enemy. You know how to counter them, you know how to roll around them and then do the 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 light green A tap to counter their attacks. It's so fun. And like, I love fighting the, the moblins and the darkness, like you said. But at the beginning of the game, they're just sort of this terrifying presence because if they see you, you, you have to go back to your cell because you have no way of countering them. It's just fun to hit things. And it's fun to see your character feel stronger, even though you only get a little bit of an actual like hit upgrade with the Master Sword and the fully powered up Master Sword after you complete those last two dungeons. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it doesn't revolutionize anything, but it's definitely a tightened, perfected version of the previous two games. 
Yeah, the way the, the free-moving camera is able to work because the, the Nintendo 64 games are like kind of the revolutionary in the terms of how are we going to handle the, the 3D world problem in video games by creating a Z-targeting uh, system where you're able to lock on to enemies. And the expansion on that from Wind Waker, and I'm not saying it's the first game to ever have a free-moving camera, Wind Waker, but it is just great that Wind Waker does the yes and from the mm. Nintendo 64 Z-targeting system to also just have a free-moving camera that Link is able to comfortably use or the player is able to comfortably use to get better bearings on their area while still moving around. Any other any other praise you want to lavish upon this game before we go on to the next question? Well, I just, I love the sailing. There's actually a few elements of this game that have become go-to criticisms, and I don't fully agree. I think I agree to the point with the Triforce fetching quest. If that many people complain about it, then it's got to, you know, be broken in some way. It's got to ruffle some feathers. But for me... I love it. That was actually, I'm not just saying this, but as a kid, my favorite part of the game. It To me, it's almost like when the game finally became what I thought it was supposed to be, which was like treasure hunting. And to me, the Triforce quest is the like final boss battle of sailing. Like mm. the majority of the game is sailing around. There's got to be some conclusion to that. And I do think the streamlined version, streamlined version in the HD version is great for replayability, but I was very happy to spend probably like several weeks just doing that task as a kid and like writing down notes in my pad of paper and stuff. But to me, I, I just love the sailing. I love the feel of it. I know it gets a bit boring and a bit repetitive and I, I agree. I wish the Great Sea was had a bit more variety, more islands, all of that. But I, for a long time, that was my idea of what an open world game was. Like, I can go wherever I want. It's a whole ocean just for me. And I actually love like changing the uh, wind. I kind of like games that sort of are annoying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they like, I like that you actually do have to shift the wind and, and like creak the boat into it and then feel that feeling of speeding up. It feels like you're working around a problem rather than like the game working itself away, trying to automate, you know? Totally. It feels strange this is the first time we're talking about the sailing but i just like it I, I like it more than a horse sorry i think it's a real feeling of freedom in a way yeah the sweeping music of the great sea mm. definitely lends itself to that but there's also like the sense of discovery in the ocean that you know walking around on a horse if, like that is a faster way of getting around but you can in the games where you have the horse you can find all these things as you know walking around link there is some gating in a couple of places in each of the games, like, uh, uh, oh, the Garuda Valley, you need a horse to get over there as adult Link. And um, Majora's Mask, you have to go to the, the beach. Uh, you have to have a Pona to do that. But for the most part, like, you can navigate most places as human Link. But with sailing, it's a necessity. It is the way you have to get around. And the fact that it feels good to do is, like, a necessity. I think Breath of the Wild captured this like well, and I think improved upon it. But... In Wind Waker, when you're in that first on that first island, and you have a telescope, and you're just seeing silhouettes of islands and thinking, "Oh, I want to go there," or like, I, I love that element where seeing something on the horizon and just not knowing what it is. I admit, as the game goes on, you're like, "It's another rock. It's another submarine with the same 
sort of interior, but your kid brain is less cynical. So when I first played it, I truly never knew what I was going to see. And there's things that I found as an adult that I never saw as a kid. Sure. Yeah. We can get around to talk about like the, the ways this game is a little underwhelming in a minute, but I did also, while we're talking about praises of the game, one of the best scores of any Zelda game ever. Um, one of my favorites, the, the different varieties of style and the, the complexity of the music just continuing to build and build from game to game, culminating in this, this game that has so many all-timer tracks from Dragon Roost Island to the Great Sea. Every single song is just burned into my brain. Every remix of the classic themes are are all in there. You know, we, we praise Koji Kondo as being the composer of the Zelda series, right? He did all the games up to this point, except for the handheld ones. He didn't do Leaks Awakening or the Oracle games, but he did all the games up to this point and he co-composed uh, Majora's Mask with uh, Toru Minigeshi, who also composed for this game. He doesn't compose most of the songs on this game. I think he only is like credited for a couple when you really like look down at the notes in the in the soundtrack. So this is like four different composers all working together to create a new sound for the new age of Zelda. And God damn it, if it isn't great. I agree. I'm really looking forward to listening to this episode back and hearing <laughs> the music that you added in. Yeah, no, like I think, and that's also thematically resonant, the fact that Koji Kondo isn't as involved in this game. Like it, that does feel like another point towards the thematic sense of Zelda is trying to grow and move on from the early years and is trying to become a new thing in this new era of gaming. I think that that is great. And it's it shows, I mean, like the fact that these songs are so great and they aren't composed by Koji Kondo speaks to the fact that like other people can do great things in this space, guys. We talked about some of the great things that this game does. Uh, we also have to kill our darlings a little bit on the show. Uh, no game is completely, completely perfect, even the ones that we love the most. So I want to put this over to you, Hamish. What are some things that you wish this game did better? You know, I've already defended the Triforce quest, so... Um... Do you know, the HD remake does fix a lot of things that this game um, got wrong. Oddly, I do think this may have the weakest dungeons of maybe all of the Zelda games, especially the 3D ones. There's definitely some great stuff, and I'm a Forsaken Fortress defender as well. I think that's really unique. It feels like a real place. Um, I really like that. But when I was said that I wanted to do Wind Waker, for this podcast, I was thinking about the sailing. I was thinking about Outset Island and Windfall Island and and the style, the music. I wasn't thinking about the dungeons. And then trying to name them from memory and try and remember them was actually kind of tough. I think because A, famously there's two that were cut or or whatever. But two of them kind of they like share themes. They share like visual language quite heavily don't they and i think they're they're just fine they're functional i think actually like twilight princess I, has a lot of memorable dungeons i really loved the like uh mansion in the frosty hills and yeah, uh, skyward, point, yeah. skyward sword has some really inventive ones as well 
but yeah, I think they're just fine. And fine is still great. I still love a dungeon, but uh, they're not really the best the series has to offer. Sure. And I think that's a symptom of this game being one of the easier ones, um, which was another thing where it's like, you know, we're going to pair this cutesier art style with some easier gameplay. So the the gameplay is going to be a little bit more navigating these dungeons is going to be easier. I remember this being the first Zelda game I was able to beat on my own without having like the the older brother guide at any point. I was able to completely do this game by myself. There wasn't any ambiguity as to what needed to be done. There's a few frustrating points for sure, but ultimately, like this is this is a very beatable game. But I do want to say, as some praise within that criticism, the boss battles are all memorably good to me. Yeah, they they feel like they play with scale a lot more than um, maybe Ocarina did. Majora, I just think about the moon, which is like the best moment of scale <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. in the game. But yeah, the big uh, centipede thing just completely dwarfs you. Yeah, and also like. I think Puppet Ganon and the final fight with Ganondorf is probably my favorite final boss, maybe? I love the moment when you defeat um, Puppet Ganon and you have to like climb up silently with no music to uh, real Ganon. It's like such a moment of accepting that this is the end without telling you this is the end. And also, like, how great that visual metaphor is that Ganon's, like, Ganon form is a puppet in this game because he is, like, such a an adherent and slave to the old ways. Yeah. Yeah. He is, like, literally on strings and can't be his own person the same way these other characters can be. Yeah. And I think me saying the dungeons aren't as good as some of the other 3D Zeldas is, like, it's, like, kind of praise. It's, like, these are still Zelda dungeons. They're still really fun. Yeah. Um... But I think other criticisms, like, I do get that this game can be frustrating. I think it's aged very well, and I think it is a good, like, entry point for new fans and younger fans. But I do think in this day and age, maybe the sailing is extremely boring. The fact that while when you start the game, it feels like endless possibilities of how many islands you're going to find. But in truth, it's like three islands have things on like people and towns and then there's like those reefs there's just endless islands that are just like one rock you bomb or i don't know it it, i think this game more than other zelda games you can kind of see where the corners were cut yeah um literally a, a statement in my notes here continue yeah i mean as a kid i loved the fact that it subverts your expectations and the third dungeon has been like destroyed my my kid brain didn't think about them cutting corners that i just thought like whoa that's so cool like ganon's so powerful maybe that's why they haven't ported it because they're reinstating those cut dungeons or whatever but don't give them hope <laughs> <laughs> i think what actually happens like they repurpose those dungeons into future entries like in twilight princess and skyward sword yeah yeah i think you can sense the corners that are cut you can sense that had this game been a big success and we managed to get a Majora's Mask or a Tears of the Kingdom style asset reuse uh, sequel that there's so much they could have added, like a whole new like hemisphere of the Great Sea filled with islands. And you know, I like Phantom Hourglass for what it is, but it's not quite the sequel that I think this game deserves. And I think the corners being cut aren't just the dungeons and the Great Sea. I do think there's um, this game's short. <laughs> 
I think the Triforce quest is definitely trying to extend it. Mm-hmm. I've heard some speculation or, or theorizing that, you know, Luigi's Mansion was intentionally short. They wanted something replayable, and it was part of the like ethos of the GameCube that games would be shorter. But I think some of the backlash you see it in this, where they're like, "Oh, this game is really short. We need to add this Triforce quest." Or in Mario Sunshine, there's the whole um, restructuring of the game that you have to like complete every single shine before you can fight Bowser. I don't mm. know how much truth there is in that. It does sound a little bit like internet person knows how games are made. Um, but I know there's the sense that leave them wanting more, but I think I just wanted more, like with Wind Waker. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a game where a criticism is valid for wanting more. There are games that it's like, you know, like this was a very intentional, intentionally made game in terms of structure and place. And in here, like you said, this is definitely one of those games where you can see the cut corners. Um, I have a whole page of this in my notes here, but I'll, I'll give you the abbreviated version. You know, some games are effectively effectively able to hide their cut corners, but the dev- developers have been pretty open in the history of Zelda games in terms of like, they had that encyclopedia that came out a few years ago. They've been very open about their limitations and like their process of developing these games and how they've worked around a lot of issues. And in this case, the reason that there's a lot of cut corners isn't because of any ethos of like the, the, the philosophy of the GameCube, but just because they needed to get this game out in time for December of 2002 so they could get it out for the holiday season in Japan. That was the reason. And look, it's, it's incredible how incredible this game is despite the limitations that it has, but it does also feel like meeting that arbitrary deadline limited it in a lot of ways. And that, I mean, the art direction was in service of that because a more sophisticated design would have added at least three years of development and wouldn't have come out until when Twilight Princess had come out anyway. The whole thing with like this game's story is how thematically connected it is to Ocarina of Time. You know, three dungeons at the beginning, three jewels to get to unlock the process of unlocking the Master Sword. And in this game, they cut that third dungeon that obviously would have been a water dungeon uh, because they ran out of time or they just decided to dedicate their time elsewhere. So instead of doing that, what would have been a water dungeon, uh, you just end up having like backtrack to a windfall, get the bombs from the pirates, go back to Outset Island, bomb the shit out of that island and open up the door to meet um, Jabun, who is um, this big fish creature. And there's no boss fight. It's literally just, oh yeah, hey, here you go. Yeah, you seem, you seem, yeah, you can totally be trusted with this. There you go. That's fine. You, no, we're not doing any dungeons. You're good. You, you did it. <laughs> and, we're, and then you go unlock the Tower of the Gods, which is like, I guess, functionally the third dungeon and probably the best dungeon in the game when I really yeah. reflect on it because of how vertical it is and how awesome that boss fight is at the top of it. Yeah, no, there's clearly concessions made. There is at least one more dungeon that was cut. And it's probably because if they had three dungeons in the beginning, they would have had to have like three sages you would have had to get. And then you'd have to power up the Master Sword three times. When you cut the early game dungeon, it's like, well, who would have been, who would be the third sage? We only introduced like two races. What, what would have been the third one? And there's like, ah, we'll just work this out in another way. <laughs> there's like too many dungeons you have to do in the lead up to those Master Sword powering up ones where you have to like get the power bracelets from the uh, volcano and then the, the iron boots from the, the ice um, ring aisle. And those are like kind of almost mini dungeons leading up to the, the main dungeons for each. But they're not, they don't, they don't work that way. No. Yeah, you, you can definitely see like some, something was cut here. Something was definitely cut here when you really 
look back on that experience and how many dungeons, say, Ocarina of Time had versus this. And the fact that you're always backtracking and you do Forsaken Fortress a few times and Mm -hmm. it feels very impressive at the start, but yeah, looking back, it does feel like there needed to be something else. There's like a few Gorons you meet, so you know that they're around, but where do they live? What's going on? Yeah, that's that's very fair. Uh, You and I have talked about the Triforce quest, but we've only kind of like gestured at it a little bit. Uh, In the GameCube version, the Triforce quest was this endgame thing leading up to the final battle to fight Ganon, the last thing you need to truly make yourself into a hero after making the Master Sword back to its former glory. And the way it was structured is that you had to find eight treasure charts that revealed the location of the hidden Triforce pieces uh, scattered throughout the world. So you had to find the chart to find the pieces. But the thing was, you also could not read these charts. So you have to take the Tatingle, who in this game is a is a, a chart decipherer. And he's like, yeah, I'll do that for you for, for money. Yay! So you have to give him 398 rupees for eight different charts, which really adds up. So you have to spend a lot of time just accumulating the capital to even get these charts deciphered for you to find these pieces in the middle of the ocean somewhere. And it becomes really cumbersome and it really feels like you're padding out the game. and this becomes like a huge issue. Mark and I talked about this in a Metroid Prime episode that a lot of games at this time, and you referenced it earlier with like the Mario Sunshine doing the same thing, these arbitrary gating things mm. where you have to find some puzzle to solve by going back around the world or completing missing levels that you may not have completed in the case of Mario Sunshine to make sure you did everything before you fight the final boss. It's not 100% completionism in a lot of cases, but it is damn near close just to like really, really make you work for that ending. And that causes a lot of people to abandon these games and not really see the final bosses in a lot of instances. And this game was a victim of that. And in this case, it really was because they needed to pad it out the length. And it's just a pretty big mark against this game because if they just had another year of development time, they could have really, really made it anything else. But they do fix it a little bit in the re-release because instead of having to find eight charts, you only have to find three. Huh? And where you would have found those other five are just the Triforce pieces this time. So you, mm. you save a tremendous amount of money and you don't have to spend nearly as much time looking for these pieces as you would have in the, uh, in the uh, original GameCube version. Yeah, when I'm defending this part of the game, it's from the perspective of like a 12-year-old who had one game to play the whole summer and was delighted that there was so much of it. But I like the idea behind the final challenge being a treasure hunt. But again, maybe those should have been mini dungeons or something a bit more interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, That could have absolutely been done better. But at the end of the day, like we still really revere this game. So as much as we've laid into it over the past few minutes, it clearly still means a lot to us. And if you are playing the re-release of this game, at least the, the most annoying part of this game is certainly abbreviated. I also, these are criticisms that Nintendo fully agrees with, I think. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that they fix them. Still, excellent video game. One that I would kill to replay again, if that indicates anything. Like, if, if this was a problem, I wouldn't be desperate to replay this game on the Switch, but I am jonesing for it so bad. I, I literally complained on Twitter earlier today about how badly I want to play this game. Looking at this holistically, after this conversation you and I have had, Hamish, what impact would you say this game made on you? I think there was a lot of things that came out around this time that made me 
like decide I want to do art, decide I want to do all these things. I wouldn't necessarily say this is the one thing that did it, but like I can't imagine what I would be like if I removed this. I may not be a Nintendo kid, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if this didn't exist, you know, I might have switched to PlayStation or something else. But I think when it comes to my own first foray into making a game that I'm kind of embarking on right now, I want someone to play a game that gives me the same feelings that like this Earthbound and Persona 5 give me. Like, it won't be the case that I have to make something, I know there's like a million and one indie games that want to be Earthbound, but it's not that I want to make something that's like a tribute to those games, I just want to make something that I think one thing those three games have in common is it really, truly captures something about childhood. In Persona 5, you're kind of a teenager, but it, it, it does a really great job of capturing the writing of teenagers. And Earthbound, you can watch a thousand video essays about how it kind of captures the sort of latchkey kid of the kind of 90s um, feeling. And I think Wind Waker, despite there being Ocarina of Time in which you literally age, I think is the most clear coming of age story that Zelda's done. And um, I think everything I make, cartoons, comics, games, it's always about like trying to work out something about my childhood. Beautifully put. Thank you so much for that explanation. No, seriously. And you are right. This is definitely like the most like really reflect, like especially since this is probably the most characterized Link is up to this point in the series. Like really feels like a character coming into his own and growing up to be the person he is. It's a, he's a very expressive character from the way that like attacks land on him and he goes flying back in a way you don't fly back in any of the other games. Mm -hmm. uh, like when a bomb hits you when you're sailing or when one of those giant freaky scary pea hat things like run into your boat and you go flying out of there and it's funny. <coughs> he's, he's put through the ringer. <coughs> he's got a lot going on. <coughs> he has a family, like you said. He has a personal stake in this. It's not just the call of destiny. And yeah, th those elements really make this into a much more personal story and I can see how it would have such an impact on you. Mm. How do you think this game affected your relationship with media and how you consume it or how it may have shaped your relationship with video games in the year since? We've talked a lot about stuff like The Last Jedi and, and things which take bold swings. I think this just made me someone who's not scared of something I love changing or doing a risk. I get excited by that. I'm one of those like annoying Twitter film people that when a film is getting like unanimous zeros and five stars i'm like so excited because that means it's doing something it's causing reactions and so i kind of feel kinship to anything that like the nerds are angry against you know <laughs> what i mean i'm a massive nerd myself but if something's making that many people angry it kind of makes me go "Ooh, it must be doing something kind of interesting since then, I've watched like loads of films that do this, but I think as a kid, this may have been one of my first experiences of that, something beloved doing something really experimental and like being on board with it and being excited. Yeah. Like I was completely ignorant of the, the art style discourse at the time because I was seven and I just mm. loved it on my own. And I was surprised that in retrospect, people weren't into it because that, I thought it was like a gorgeous looking video game. Um, and I guess that's the other thing, like your online conversations really have an influence on other people's tastes 
And you see how that happens with like YouTube culture, generally like trying to traffic in culture war issues vis-a-vis big blockbuster movies, whether that's a uh, Captain Marvel or Star Wars, The Last Jedi, or how George Lucas is coming back to Lucasfilm to hire Brie Larson from the Star Wars film that she is totally in. And none of this is fake. What are you talking about? That kind of shit, you know? I've enjoyed um, the last month of Mario movie discourse where it went from woke Mario movie with girl boss Peach is going to radicalize your kids and then realizing that it's nothing like that. It's kind of a bad movie, but I kind of like it. But now it's turned to like Chris Pratt's F you to Hollywood by making a a politics free movie. It's like, it doesn't matter what the product is. Every thing that comes out as a weapon in this stupid war (laughs) yeah yeah we talk about the personal relationships with Mm. video games here like you know we want to talk about like the impacts it made on an individual we talk about like oh yeah this changed video games in this way or you know people reacted to it in a broad way this way because you know they they inform the conversation but ultimately we experience art to like be moved ourselves and we talk about art so we can like be engaged with other people Nobody truly revels in revels in the discourse. Like nobody is like a better person for knowing so much about what people argue about online. It it, it hurts. It hurts these conversations because it feels reductive, and we just kind of make them into personal arguments or ideological arguments rather than, you know, these artful considered conversations. So I guess this is, I don't know what my ultimate point is by saying all this. <laughs> more more so as like my childhood enjoyment of it wasn't affected by any outside sources, mm. and. It's a good game. I agree. I agree. talked about this game's impact on you we've talked about how it has shaped your tastes in the years since is there anything else that you wanted to talk about with regards to the wind waker that we haven't already discussed before we move on i like the sploosh guy sploosh oh yeah there are some there are some pretty good mini games in this game (laughs) aren't there the the battleship sort of game where he's like sploosh every time you do land a hit I like that you first meet Tingle by breaking him out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like meta commentary on a level. <laughs> I haven't brought them up, but I, I really like uh, Medley. I think her name is the Rito girl. I think there's some really nice side characters. I think my favorite part of the game is when um, the sages kind of come into the boat with you and you like take them elsewhere. I think that feels really nice. I'm just rattling them off, but like it's it's just lovely. I love that every NPC is like a unique design, and I don't know, it's great. When Full Island in particular, I think I didn't I, even as a kid I didn't really appreciate it as much as I did on um, my replay, where I really invested myself in a lot of the side quests mm-hmm. and um, making that whole sort of town come alive with flowers and yeah, it's good. Yeah, I love Windfall Island in this game. And you're right, there's so many... There aren't a lot of towns in this game because, again, cut corners, there's only really a few populated areas, but there is a lot of variety and you don't really see a lot of repeated faces, which is great. 
Yeah, I really like the way that this game plays with the established visual design of the Legend of Zelda with the post boxes and the, you know, the Rito sort of being Evolution of Zora and the Gorons kind of being like this not super present thing, but are around. Mm. It's great. And I think we've covered most of what I wanted to talk about in this episode. <laughs> so I think we are ready to move on and sort of change this into a recommendation conversation. Uh, what would you recommend to listeners based off of our discussion today with The Wind Waker? Cool. So I'll start with a couple of games I thought of, and I've got some movie recommendations afterwards. But the games I was thinking of is if you want something from a similar time, um, I think Okami is good. I do think it's a game that I have liked a little less on a replay. Uh, I think it's a little too horny for its own good. <laughs> but it's like the best Zelda game that's not a Zelda game you can get. And it has an, uh, it also has just like a great art style that's held up. And unlike Wind Waker, it has an HD remake that is readily available everywhere. <laughs> so, Including the Switch. Including the Switch. That's how I played it last. It's also just so long in terms of like Wind Waker cuts corners. This <laughs> Okami you think is going to end like four or five times. It just keeps going. But it's origami, how many corners has? Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, it's really great. The other game I was just going to re- reference is Tunic, which is a modern game. Um, it draws a lot more from the 2D Zelda's in terms of its kind of gameplay, but I think it has a similar childlike wonder to it that Wind Waker has and um, its core mechanic. As I I mentioned earlier that I used to draw my own instruction manuals for fake games and the core mechanic of this is you're playing a game that kind of doesn't have an instruction manual and you unlock pages from it as you progress and you have to decipher it. It's a real fun game for casual players but also anyone that's like bought a like a japanese game and tried to work out how to play it it's really nice it's great uh any other recommendations well i was going to mention some animation so i'm an animator and this is the most cartoony kind of zelda game so there's an anime that came out i think last year called ranking of kings i really love it it's the closest i've seen to an animation an anime i guess kind of capturing that Wind Waker style. Um, it's about a little boy called Boshi, who is the heir to a huge empire, and he's very small and he's deaf, and they, I think, represent that really well. It's just very sweet. It does get more intense and sad as it goes on, but um, it's really great. And then, I mean, saying Studio Ghibli feels like kind of a given with Zelda. I think they kind of feed off each other quite a lot. Um, I think Castle in the Sky is a good parallel to this. I know that like Skyward Sword is probably a more obvious thing because of kind of airships, but you know, Castle in the Sky is about a boy finding a girl who has a secret lineage to an ancient kingdom and there's pirates and villains. It's um a really great one. I think it's definitely, you know, it's one of the early ones. And then the films of Cartoon Saloon. I think all of them kind of have a, a Zelda-like quality, but Song of the Sea obviously has a connection to Wind Waker, um, Secret of Kells, and uh, Wolf Walkers, I think. Yes, Wolf Walkers. They could very easily be taking place in the same world as uh, Wind Waker. They have an art style that isn't completely 
I don't think it's like drawing off Wind Waker, but they feel um, very similar in some ways. I know everyone says Studio Ghibli should make a Zelda movie or whatever, but I think if anyone was going to, it should be Cartoon Saloon. But I also think they should keep making their own original stuff and not make a advert for a video game. Yeah, no, they're going to be making a... Uh... <laughs> They're going to be making a Star Wars short, though, for Visions. That's ah, going to be cool. Um, okay. <laughs> so they are going in a little bit in IP. I love Wolf Walker so much, though. They're a great mm. studio. Great recommendations. Perfect recommendations, even. Uh, I leave you today with just two, because I figured you would be breaking uh, a lot of the recommendations that you came with today, specifically Wolf Walkers and uh, or Cartoon Saloon in general and uh, Okami. So I've been playing this game recently called Chia, which came out last month for Windows and PlayStation. Uh, this is an open-world adventure game released in March of 2023 based on New Caledonian culture. Uh, this is a game with an archipelago setting. It's, it's, a, it's a fictitious setting, but the game is very, very upfront that the culture and setting is based directly off of New Caledonia to the point that the game is dubbed in French and Drevu, which is the language is spoken on the, island, on, on, on the archipelago. And the culture is very directly based off of a Kanak culture, which is the uh, culture of the indigenous people of New Caledonia. It was developed by um, Awaseb, which is a Bordeaux-based uh, indie studio co-founded by two people who are raised in New Caledonia. So it's a very personal project for them. It was developed by a team of 12 people, and it is this very rich open world experience that I have been really enjoying. It's very relaxing to play. It feels very low stakes. It's not as like apocalyptic as a Breath of the Wild is, but it is this really lovely open world blend with Mario Odyssey's possession mechanic mixed with like the open-ended like really go anywhere of Breath of the Wild. Chia is an indigenous girl with the ability to soul jump, which is her ability to control animals and inanimate objects like rocks or gasoline cans or lanterns and she'd be able to hurl rocks or gasoline cans at enemies if she needed to or just use it to develop momentum it's a very momentum based game where you are able to uh, hurl your character from trees roll forward as a rock or like throw yourself forward as a rock jump out and then try and attach yourself to something else to continue your movement maybe possess a bird what have you slide down a hill and your character also has a glider much like in Breath of the Wild and Wind Waker with the leaf and also a raft a lot like a Wind Waker. And because of the game's archipelago setting, you're going to be doing a lot of sailing from island to island if you don't have, because you probably aren't going to be able to possess uh, a, a fish long enough to get from one setting to the next. So it's very Wind Waker in its design too, especially with the uh, cartoonish aesthetic of everything. It's a very good game. It's definitely not perfect, but it is very, very unique because of its... Uh, relationship with a very real world like culture and setting but putting it into a fictitious game that probably would not have existed at any other point in video game history so definitely worth checking out it is free if you have the extra tier or higher on playstation so that's for playstation 4 playstation 5 and it's 30 dollars otherwise again you're getting an open world experience for 30 dollars at most it's going to be a game that's inevitably inevitably going to go on sale but definitely wishlist it chia check it out and then my other recommendation is a movie. Uh, it is compulsory that in every Zelda episode we mention the works of Studio Ghibli. You've already mentioned Castle in the Sky. The one that I wrote down because of this game's more great sea and island setting is Porco Rosso, which is 
one of the more underrated Miyazaki movies, or more overlooked, I should say. There's no really, truly underrated Miyazaki film. It's just a great, great story uh, about a pilot who is a man transformed into a pig. A lot of Italian uh, sensibilities to it. I mean, the character's name is literally Pocoroso. So really wonderful. Uh, it's on HBO Max. I own the steelbook for it. It's, it's really one of my favorite animated movies. Uh, the, the just gorgeously animated, overlooked. And I know people are probably like, what about Ponyo? Ponyo has a lot of sea <laughs> visual aesthetics too. What about Ponyo, motherfucker? And yeah, no, look, Ponyo's great. Ponyo is wonderful. But very specifically, the, the way Porco's flying around from island to island and interacting with different people and having a more adventurous, action-y adventure as opposed to Ponyo, which is just more about like relationships. I, mm. I think that it, Porco Rosso is just like a better fit for that, which is why I'm recommending that one today. But really, you can't go wrong with most studio ghibli productions so if you have an hbo max login or just love studio ghibli movies in general and want to buy the readily available g kids re-releases check it out yeah it's amazing i mean all their films are amazing but um it's definitely up there among my faves yeah yeah so chia and Pocoroso, as well as hamish's recommendations hamish thank you again for taking so much time to talk to me <laughs> about one of my favorite video games Please, before you go, promote the hell out of yourself. Cool. So I'm Hamish Steele on everything. Um, I have a show on Netflix called Dead End Paranormal Park. It's about teens working in a theme park uh, that is also home to an elevator to the world of demons. Um, it's very queer. It's um, for kids, but it's about heaven and hell and, and kind of spooky and scary. And that's based on a webcomic called Dead Endia, and that is being published by Union Square this month. I don't know when this goes out, but I'm doing like a mini book tour um, in LA and and things. I think it's probably gone by now, but I will be around this summer promoting the hell out of these books. It's two editions of the webcomic, and then there is a third book coming out next year. But that's me. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me. I I truly love this podcast, and um, it's one of those podcasts where when you listen to, you're just answering all the questions in your head of like, what would you pick? I have one more recommendation, and that is you need to play Persona Five some point. I know it's on your long, 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 long list, but uh, no, I'm happy to revisit it, or I'm I happy think... to play it. I should say, <laughs> I think you'll really dig it with the the themes it brings up. I've heard you say in other episodes are important to you so i think you'd, you'd dig it no i own persona 5 golden like i have like the, the steelbook <laughs> edition and everything I, i've owned it since the pandemic i just haven't gotten around to it yet it, I'm, like i said next time i'm unemployed or i'll play it very soon it i'm, I'm sure that the urge is going to come up eventually i'd be happy mm -hmm. to talk about it with you in a, in a future episode so thank you again hamish it's really an honor having you here i'm so glad that you enjoy the show thank you once again for coming on and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I am your host, editor, and promoter, Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you listen to it. Engagement helps the show, and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about The Legend of Zelda, Wind Waker, or any other games we've discussed, send a DM or leave a comment, and I will gladly read it on the show. 
You can also support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Corner. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you will get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. You can also follow me on Twitter at Danny Vegito and find links to the rest of my projects in the description of this and every episode. Select and Start is on the Moonshot Network, which is supported by its own Patreon. Find out more at moonshotpods.com. The art for the show is made by my best friend Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work as well as Hamish's. All right, I think that's it. Nothing can stop the flow of time or the passing of generations, but the fate carried within my bloodline endures the ravages of all the years. It survives.